I'm Dustin Wynn. This is Freddie Williams. This is Ian Sattler, Senior Story Editor at DCU. Hi, this is Nadia DeFilippis. And Christina Weir. Hi, this is Kevin Vandal. Hi, this is Lee Bermeo. Hi, this is Brian Ezrelli. Hi, this is Matt Wagner, author of Batman and the Monster Man and Batman and the Mad Monk. Hey, this is Mike Martz, Batman Group Editor. Hey, this is Ethan Van Skybro. My name is Neil Adams. This is Paul Dini. This is Brett McCreenberger. This is Jerry Robinson. Hey, this is uh, Will Spertaccio. This is Adam Beechin, and you're listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast, episode number 83. I'm your host Dustin and today we have with us... This is Don. This is Joe. And this is Stella. And we are bringing you the latest comic book news and comic book reviews from the weeks of December 18th through December 31st. A lot of comics to go over, a total of 8 comics specifically... Actually, there's not that much news to go over because it's the middle of the holiday season and, of course, everything seems to die down a little bit during the two weeks. The one week leading up to Christmas and the one week after Christmas always seems to be not very newsworthy. So, uh, we'll go over into the news, hit hit our eight comics, we'll have books for beginners, we'll go over our DCU spotlight, and hopefully we'll still clock in under three hours. Let's uh, get right into comic book news. Stroking genius on my part, if I do say so myself. And I'll be killing two birds with one stone. (laughs) Two birds with one stone. (sighs) The very first thing we've got is on December 21st, Scott Snyder talked with Comic Book Resources about some things that are going to be happening in Batman, he specifically was talking about the first four issues of the series, but he, he talked a lot about the Court of Owls, too. So for this interview, I will read for Comic Book Resources, and Don will read for Scott Snyder. We've also got this mayoral candidate character in Lincoln March, who every time he shows up, I just wait for the other shoe to drop. He just can't be as good as he seems. What's it bring to the story that to have that tension hang over a character and his relationship to Bruce. I know! I'm very aware of that. The second a nice guy walks into Gotham, everyone's expecting him to be the villain of the world, so it's not something I'm looking to suddenly go and, and guess what? He's a villain! People are hoping that will happen or maybe won't happen, but he's going to be a more complex character than that. That's not to say he won't be a villain. Who knows? But it's not going to be a sudden, I'm pulling off my mask, I was the Talon, but now I'm Lincoln March. Don't worry about that. It's not like there's one person who's an unknown quantity and he just ends up being the big villain. That's not exactly something I would go near. Again, I'm no way saying he might not be a villain. I love how people are wondering if he's a big villain or a small villain or crooked. I want to keep that in play. He absolutely might be. But I don't think that it will be a one-to-one. And the other thing I'll propose is that there's almost something sadder about a person who's tragically doomed, who's a hero to Gotham. To Bruce, this is an example of someone who's trying to make a difference on the civic front. And in the past few years, Bruce has come out of his shell and tried to shape Gotham as Bruce Wayne to embrace a personality of Bruce Wayne that's more honest and closer to his persona of Batman that's not just a stupid facade that he took on for so long. I'm just a bumbling playboy and I don't care about anything. Instead, he's taken an active role in Gotham politically and architecturally. That's really exciting to me. To have someone who is a father figure to him, someone who's a little older and saying, I'm trying to do the same thing as you, but I don't have the resources that you have, and if people come after me and try to kill me, I'm going to keep on going because Gotham is worth it. 
And to have something bad happen to that character is in some way more interesting to me than the guy just pulling off his face and becoming the scarecrow or whatever. Again, in no way am I trying to give away who he is or who he might be in the end, but he's a character who's try- going to play an important role for Bruce, and I think set an example for him that will have repercussions in the long run. He's not a throwaway character for all of us. He's a very big keystone in the story, and how exactly it plays out, I hope, will involve people in the story going forward. Overall, you speak to a lot of the guys who write Batman books, from Tony Daniel to Peter Tomasi, and on down the line. What kind of discussions are you having right now about how the books play off each other? Will we start seeing more crossover between the books, or will those impacts be subtle as the New 52 continues to plot its own course on a title-by-title basis? It'll be a little bit of both. I love taking ideas from Tony and Pete, like the grandfather clock in Batman and Robin, or what's going on with Damien. We talk quite often, and we talk to Gail and a number of other people at the Bat Office. Mike Martz does a great job keeping all of us in touch, and there are going to be some pretty big things in the crossover between Batman and Nightwing in a few months, as well as Batman and the other books in the line. Without giving away too much of how this will all work, the story in Batman will have a pretty big impact on the other books coming soon. Stay tuned for all of that, but that doesn't mean that everything happening in, the, in Batman isn't self-contained. I don't want you to think that you're going to have a, to read other books to understand Batman or vice versa. That's not something I, I do as a writer or ask of other writers. There's no storyline requiring you to move to the other books, but some of what I'm interested in might also interest the other guys in the other books. And things they do are things I want to incorporate thematically into Batman. Even though we want each book to stand on its own, there are some ideas that will be shared in small and big ways coming up in the course of the year. So that's the end of that interview. Nothing really super surprising coming from that interview. I have started to see, especially with the set of books that we are going to be reviewing today, I have been seeing a little bit more of references to the other books, specific events getting mentioned in the other books, which I always like seeing those things, and that to me is something that is a good sign of a good editorial team which clearly the Batman books, for the most part, have a good editorial team and they're linking some of these things, and that's what makes it worthwhile for those of us who are reading so many of these different books and not just picking up one or two of them. So I find that interesting to know that there's going to be some stuff coming up shortly. I kind of liked how he handled that question of is Lincoln March a good guy or a bad guy, because it's a very obvious question, and... At the same time, you, kind of, you don't really expect him to answer that. Well, he is or he isn't. But I do like how he straight up says, well, it's very immediate thing to assume that he is. I don't want you to think that he is, but he could be at the same time. You know, just keep reading. What I'm saying is that I kind of liked how he answered the question. I'm still interested in the book, and whether, regardless of whether March is a bad guy or a good guy, regardless, it's still kind of keeping me invested. I agree with Dustin that I like the fact that we're going to see more crossover between the Bat titles, but I also really like that Snyder is keeping his his work to his own book in that we're not going to have to read other titles if we don't want to read them to understand the story. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that there's communication going on in the DCU offices now. And I definitely agree with Don. I liked the answer that he gave regarding Lincoln. And I think it is kind of a cop-out just to have this guy, and he is really shiny on the outside, and you just automatically think that he's a bad guy right away. So I think it would be great if it is something different, it really throws you off, or perhaps really later down the line something something happens, I guess a la Two-Face. But it'll just be interesting to see how this minor character grows in the book. 
Moving on to the next bit of news, also on December 21st, Paul Jenkins, the writer for Batman the Dark Knight, spoke with Newsarama about some of the upcoming things in Batman the Dark Knight. So for this interview, I will read for Newsarama, and Joe will read for Paul Jenkins. What themes are we seeing so far in your run with David? One of them you've seen so far is, what is fear and how do you overcome it? We've pointed the story that way a bit so far, but once we get into a few more issues into the book, with issue number 8, I'll be taking over the story and Dave will do artwork. Which is fine with Dave, because he wants to make sure he stays on there as an artist on the book. But I still discuss the story with Dave. I call him up and say, what do you think of this? So he and I are still doing the book together that way. The biggest thing that Dave wants is that fans will see issue number 9 still being drawn by Dave Finch, and that they can stop talking about him being late. I know how far ahead he is. He's really ahead. In fact, he's so far ahead that he's further ahead than the other people I'm working with on other books. (laughs) (laughs) Overnight, Dave was suddenly labelled as a late artist, and that shouldn't be the case. He's actually very prolific. He'll still be drawing on issue 9, but he's not taking a break. Getting back to the theme, is the current theme of fear going to continue through your run, or are you wrapping that up with issue number 7? Well, it runs its course by virtue of what happens in the story as we end this story arc. We investigate the concept of fear by asking, what is Batman afraid of? And if he is afraid, what is he doing in his life to overcome that fear? Basically, we've got the Scarecrow in the book that's coming up, and he's just shocking. But then it takes a turn, and when people see it, they'll say, well, there you go, that is Batman's fear. And I think people will say, oh, that makes sense, and I'll tell you this, it's not the Scarecrow. You'll see that reveal in issue 6 and 7. I think people will have a lot of answers to that question. What is Batman afraid of? We provide one answer and say, this makes sense. And the theme is actually delivered as the last line of the book in issue number 7. So I can't spoil it. So what's coming up in the book going forward? The next story arc will be about Jim Gordon and Batman, and their respective places in Gotham. Jim Gordon is a very loyal guy who works hard, He has put his neck on the line to work with Batman, and he's getting a lot of heat for it. There are lots of eyes watching him now. And in our next storyline, Jim gets involved in a very personal case that dredges up bad memories from his past, and he goes to Batman and asks for help. The story highlights the differences between the two men. It's the scene of that interview. There was another part of this interview that we didn't include on the website, where he basically, yet again, goes on about David Finch not being a late artist, and how it's unfair of so many people labeling him as a late creator. The fact of the matter is Dave Finch got the label of a late creator because he put out three books in eight months, and that that would be why. (laughs) But, you know, he he hasn't obviously had any issues with being on time for the the new volume of Batman the Dark Knight, but at the same time... I'm I'm more interested in seeing what direction Paul Jenkins going when he's the sole writer and not co-plotting with David Finch because, as we'll talk about when we get to the review for Batman the Dark Knight number four, there's some very odd things happening that I directly relate to the co-plotting by David Finch. I'll talk about that later. I'm actually kind of interested in where this story is going now, and which obviously we'll get into in the review. But with Paul Jenkins, I feel that 
Well, I mean, I'm interested in the story he's telling. I think he should kind of keep a lid on it because he was saying things like, "Oh, Gordon asked for for Batman's help for a personal problem in uh, issue in this issue. We'll find out what that problem is in this issue. So I don't want to spoil things. People want to know what what Batman's afraid of. We'll find out what he's afraid of in this issue. But I won't spoil things. Like he's kind of spoiled things already. So I mean, I found that kind of amusing. All that being said, I, I am kind of digging where this is going, and I believe in Paul Jenkins. But that was kind of an amusing interview in that he's not very good at not spoiling things, even if he tries. So then moving into our last bit of news, on December 29th, Chris Burnham talked with Humble Resources about the release of Batman Incorporated Leviathan Strikes, but also the future of Batman Incorporated and how it's going to play out. So for this interview, I'll read for Humble Resources, and Stella will read for Chris Burnham. You'll be continuing on with the next iteration of Batman Incorporated. Are you well into the series now? Are these Leviathan pages something you have, haven't touched in a while? It has not been that long. It's only been four weeks, maybe, since I finished the last one. Take that as you will. They have not solicited the first issue of Batman Incorporated's return yet. That will be coming soon. I know the answer, but I don't think I'm allowed to say. It's not as soon as people want, but we're working hard on it, and it's coming. But the number one question I've seen from people online when the New 52 came out was, what does this do to Grant's Batman story, since it's, it is built so much on what's come before? What can you say about the impact, if any, that the relaunch has had on his plans and your work? Well, for the second volume of Incorporated, there are little changes like Catwoman not knowing who Batman is anymore, or Batgirl being able to walk, or Commissioner Gordon having red hair now. But all that stuff doesn't really matter in terms of the Batman versus Leviathan story. I've read the story notes in the first couple of scripts, and it's a brand new Batman adventure with new villains and new characters. And the stuff that's coming back from the first volume is the core Batman members versus the forces of Leviathan. I think it's hopefully going to dodge the question of the weird continuity problems. Hopefully we'll be able to dodge that entirely. Ah, 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 ah. So, when Grant's full Batman run is completely done, you'll be able to read it all from start to finish, and the Flashpoint thing won't even register. That's my hope. Alright, so that's the end of that interview. Here's my problem with his statement. How can Batman Incorporated has, have a second volume be playing into continuity, but not playing into the continuity that's in the other books? That's a huge problem for me, because... That That's basically, well, he's going to finish the story regardless of what's happening in the entire DC Universe. And if he has to do minor changes like Commissioner Gordon having red hair, okay, that's not a big deal. But for the most part, we're not concerned about continuity. We're concerned about carrying on what his initial plan was. To me, that seems like, why even bother then? I mean, why even bother making references to Batman Incorporated in these other in these other titles if it's something that is basically not going to follow what's going on in the other titles? It, to me, that just doesn't make a lot of sense. And on his comment about uh, Batman Incorporated being solicited yet, I think what he says when he says, that'll be coming soon, but I'm not going to say anything, and I know it's not as soon as people want... I'm really wondering when exactly that means, since we already have the solicitations for March. So, what are we talking? I mean, is it, is it, are we talking it's going to be, you know, not April, not May, not June? 
I mean, this is getting a little ridiculous. And I know that Batman Incorporated has been has been one of those series that, for the most part, has been not plagued by long delays, but a decent series of delays. And to keep prolonging this and then not be able to... And then say, by the way, uh, we don't care about continuity. We're going to tell the story the way we wanted to tell the story. That seems a little stupid. You really don't want to hear me talk about continuity in Batman these days. Because it's just a mess. And I think that with Leviathan, they really can't afford to reference any sort of like 52 continuity. So for 52 to sort of reference Batman Incorporated, which, which seems to kind of be drowning out all the uh, Batman Incorporated stuff in the first place. I think it's just... It's not a good idea, I think, objectively. Whether you're a fan of one thing or another, I think that just to tell a story is honestly the most important thing and kind of screw screw continuity at at this point in terms of telling this Leviathan story because it's very, very confusing. You can't just enjoy the story without it because it takes you out when, when you think, like, okay, does this count? Does this not count? So I think that their best chances are just to, to completely forego any sort of sense of cohesion and just assume that this takes place before Flashpoint, which the first issue we'll get into kind of does, but with this interview, it seems like they're trying to conflate things more and, and just kind of just ruins most things. I can't see how it's not going to conflict between the pre and then post Flashpoint, because the Leviathan Strikes one shot said, obviously, that it was set before Flashpoint, which I like because... That makes Flashpoint matter, and that it was Flashpoint that led into the new 52, and it wasn't just a reboot where everything starts new or gets a bit relo- gets relaunched. So it actually meant that Flashpoint was the cause of the pre-52 to the po- to the new 52 as we know it now. So I don't understand what that does to the history of Batman Inc. If that means that Steph never went to England and Oracle didn't exist or or doesn't anymore and whether she is going to be the digital Oracle or I'm just wondering how if they ever look back as in the people in Batman Inc. ever look back whether that stuff happened or it didn't or it was just with different characters that's why I'm wondering and if that will matter or not I just find it really amusing that he says there are little changes, you know, like Catwoman not knowing. (laughs) Little, those are pretty big, to be honest. But, you know, I don't see why they can't just say this takes place pre, you know, Flashpoint, like they did with Leviathan Strikes, and then we just recognize that it's going on kind of in a different universe sort of thing, and, and then we can actually continue to see characters that we have known and loved, cough, cough, Stephanie. But this seems like really, really confusing to try to make them all mesh together, but I guess, like all answers, we'll have to wait to see. So that is all of our comic book news, so let's get right into our comic book reviews, and the first book we have is Batman. Surprised to see me? A little. I'm more surprised that I lived so long. Batman, Bruce Wayne. Bruce Wayne, Batman. Or have you met? Not now. Great. What did they used to call it? Stereo? Written by Scott Snyder, art by Greg Capullo. The issue starts off with basically right where the last issue ended with the explosion of one of the Cordoval hideouts in Batman Inside. And after some deduction, Batman realizes that the whole point of this was a is kind of like a scare tactic for someone being inside and Batman gets out of the building before it actually completely explodes. 
Back at the Batcave, Dick Grayson is completely worried about Batman, thinking that he doesn't actually know what he's going up against. Is concerned and talks to Alfred about it, and after that, he realizes that Bruce is already patched up and already back at work trying to figure out what there is to know about the Court of Owls. We soon find out that despite Dick Grayson's fear of Bruce not knowing what he's getting himself into, as it turns out, uh, Bruce Wayne lets Dick know that when he was a child, after his parents were killed, he was convinced that the Court of Owls actually had something to do with his parents' murder, so he did an investigation. His actual very first investigation as a detective, he did an investigation to find out whether or not this Court of Owls had anything to do with his parents' murder. To make a long story short, after a bunch of following a bunch of clues, he ended up getting stuck inside of a old house and was stuck up there for a week. By the time they found him, he was comatose. So what ends up happening is he, Bruce tells Dick, listen, I know exactly what there is. And when I looked into it before and every time I've looked into it since, there's never been anything to go off of. And I've dug deeper, than, more than I ever should have. So from there, Batman goes out on patrol and... Looks like he's going to meet up with Commissioner Gordon because the bat signal's lit up, but it appears he doesn't. Instead, he goes down to the sewers to look for something very specific that he found on the bo the bones of Alan Wayne, who died in the sewers. While he's down in the sewers, Talon appears and actually breaks Batman through a specific section of the sewers, and Batman ends up in a giant maze. And that is the end of Batman. Batman number four. This was an interesting issue. I again love the history lessons. I, I don't. I'm, I'm going to start to sound like a broken record every time we get a history lesson inside the pages of Batman. I'm enjoying what's going on. I like the idea of bringing some of Bruce's uh, early years, you know, right after his parents died. There's there's this big gap of time that I've always talked about in the past. Of I'd love to know more information about it. And it would be from the time that his parents died to the time that he actually becomes Batman, which would be about Batman Year One. Because there's not a lot of information about his training, there's not a lot of information about how you know he goes from being this this young boy to becoming you know Batman maybe possibly fourteen years later. So I I like learning about this. Um the Court of Owls is is continuing to intrigue me. I love Greg Capullo's art. I think it's amazing. I think the, the scene where Batman's standing on the building looking at Commissioner Gordon is is really good, and uh, he's doing a great job. It's, it's hard to actually nitpick some of the stuff that went wrong with this issue because I didn't really find anything that went wrong with this issue, so I'm going to give this four and a half out of five batterings. <laughs> a break from last month. I actually wasn't as high on this issue as Dustin was. I'm still digging Snyder's run. I'm still dig digging Capullo's art generally. I'm still digging the Court of Owls storyline. I'm still digging this title. But this was, in my opinion, like this didn't grab me as much as the other issues did. And really, it wasn't for a lack of trying, but I did not care for that flashback. I am never really a fan of incorporating things that... that like, I'm not going to say it contradicts anything, but incorporating things into our origin stories that sort of like build upon... You know what you what we thought we knew. It's sort of like Disney sequels. You know, like oh, in, in the middle of the Beauty and the Beast, you know, Belle and, and the Beast, you know, had a picnic or whatever, and it changed their lives forever. Though we never mentioned it in the film. It's kind of like I don't know. I I don't like the idea that Bruce, you know, 
decided as a child, you know, oh, it must be these owls guys that killed my parents. So I'm going to become a junior detective and try to figure out what happened. And then, you know, was was uh, in a coma for three weeks. That, And, you know, I can't really explain why that bothers me. But I like Batman's origin because it's very simple. I like the idea that, you know, his parents died. I'm going to wage war on crime. To do that, I'm going to become a detective as well as a master martial artist and figure out things so I can become smart and figure out things that the police can't. As opposed to, my parents died, I have to become a detective to figure out that the Court of Owls did it and to prove they did it. That really rose me the wrong way. And because of that, it kind of, I don't want to say tore the issue down because I didn't dislike the issue all the, at, at the end of the day, but I certainly didn't appreciate it as much as the other ones. Three and a half out of five batterings. I think this was actually my favorite issue of the series so far at times it was a little bit ridiculous but it's a comic book so it's allowed to be i agree with dawn in that generally i don't like things which add to origin stories especially just for plot convenience and stuff having said that i think that this didn't add anything that contradicted anything i think that it it could be jammed in there without being uh intrusive and i think that there's a reason why bruce may not have told anyone this particularly i mean for the great detective it might be a bit embarrassing saying he got locked in a room and ended up comatose so i think there is a reason why he wouldn't say it but i did really like the art in it and i think that whilst it i mean it wasn't exactly clear at times but it wouldn't have to be because it was a memory even though bruce does have a photographic memory but i mean he was comatose by the end so he's bound to forget something i enjoyed the back and forth between dick and alfred i thought that was really funny I think Alfred is one of my favourite back characters just because of he always brings humour to the book and I think that that was used really well in this issue. And I think that this whole issue was drawn a lot better, especially Dick. I thought he looked a lot older than he did in issue one and I think it was more believable as Nightwing. Four out of five batterings. I guess I'm closer to Don than, well, Don's opinion, I guess I should say, than, than Dustin and Joe. Oh, that's a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so, I don't mean to do this. You know, I'm, I'm sad to say that this book has gone down in quality for me. And it's not, I don't know. I mean, I expect, like, high things from Scott Snyder. I just don't think, I think the idea and everything is there. It's just not coming out as well. Uh, you know, this issue is just really dialogue heavy. And I feel like the story is is really complicated and it's getting even more complicated in this issue and I don't think much really progresses. I wonder why Dick is in this issue. Yes, it's great to see a crossover characters, but really what purpose does he serve besides getting Bruce to tell us a story from his obviously obsessive childhood and then you know just as the issue ends, I feel like things really start to pick up and get exciting, which is kind of a pity, to be honest. A subtle storyline, you know, that really has started to poke its head through is Alfred's concern for Bruce. And I wonder if this is going to get bigger as we progress, especially since, you know, Alfred took actual steps to force Bruce to slow down, you know, slipping him a roofie. And we kind of see this echo in The Dark Knight 2. I think that was the other issue that this was happening, his concern. So, you know, this issue is not really of high quality. And I think we could have really progressed without it. Three out of five bad terrains. So out of four reviews, that is going to give Batman number four a total of four out of five veterans. Let's move into our next issue, Batman the Dark Knight number four. Insert tertiary Dark Knight movie clip, sound clip here. <coughs> Holy interplanetary yardstick! Batman the Dark Knight issue number four. 
written by by Paul Jenkins and David Finch, art by David Finch. Back where we left off from issue three, Batman is investigating Poison Ivy's laboratory. He is attacked by one of Poison Ivy's trademark fine monsters, but he eventually gets the better hand of that. Alfred is giving him knowledge that Wonder Woman is contacting him through his his uh, Cowell's communicator, and she's saying that you know because all the villains that escaped Arkham back in issue one were your villains, and they kind of you know they were escaped under your watch. We can't really help you, even though you enlisted help of the Flash, and you need to deal with whatever you're doing with on your own, and then help us. Batman's like, you know what? She's right. So he does some more detective work, finds a clue of Ivy's chemicals. She ordered chemicals out on a piece of paper. He finds it in a magazine about horses for some reason, and heads back to the Batcave. After a strange scene with Jim Gordon drinking and leaving a drunk message on Bruce Wayne's cell phone, somehow he has Bruce Wayne's cell phone number, but okay. We see Batman and Alfred in the Batcave, as we often do. Alfred has two cones of ice cream and gives them to Batman for some stress therapy, oddly enough. Batman is heading back because he has triangulated the origin of Ivy's poisons, and he's flying over in the Batwing as we see a scene of the Flash still running to get the toxin out of his system. And we also see Miss J being set up for a date, apparently. And Alfred has some stress of himself in his own room. While Batman is flying on the Batwing, all of a sudden he is attacked on top of the plane by Deathstroke the Terminator. Deathstroke, who apparently is hopped up on the the steroidal Venom-esque kind of toxin that has afflicted both Two-Face and Clayface in earlier issues, forces Batman to jump out of the Batplane by basically chopping the front part in half. Batman survives the fall and hits the tree, which actually happens to be conveniently located near the shed where he was flying to anyway. He slowly goes in the shed, turns the corner, and sees the Scarecrow in a full-page splash. To be continued. All right, Batman the Dark Knight number four. Okay, so here's my problem with Batman the Dark Knight. <laughs> I am not really liking the fact that for some reason every single issue has to have a guest appearance by somebody who normally you wouldn't see in a Batman book. Last issue is Flash. This issue it's Wonder Woman. I also don't like the fact that uh, the actual dialogue between Batman and Wonder Woman is basically Wonder Woman blaming Batman for her having to help out. Really? How many times does Batman have to help out and the guy doesn't have superpowers? You can't... You're having a problem wrangling some people out of Arkham Asylum? That's... Uh, uh, wow, I, I don't know where to go from there. All I have to say is uh, Deathstroke appearing... I'd be interested to know if Kyle Higgins, who's also writing the Deathstroke comic, had any idea that he was going to be popping up in Batman the Dark Knight because I, again, think this is another wonderful cameo brought to us by David Finch and his need to draw these characters. I also find it interesting that uh, Tony Daniel has been making this big deal about how Scarecrow could be appearing in Detective Comics, and they're going to have this big story with Scarecrow, and that kind of just got upstaged by the fact that Scarecrow is now appearing as a main character in this series. So, so much for that. And that's not to say that the character can't appear in both, but when you go on and on about how, oh, Scarecrow hasn't been used in a while, we're going to bring Scarecrow, and we're, I'm going to do this great story with Scarecrow, but meanwhile, four months before your Scarecrow story hits shelves, you've got a crappy story that pops up with Scarecrow in it that's put out by the same editorial team as, as the editorial team does your book. Uh, I think you should know about that before you start telling everybody that. I don't really have a whole lot of good things to say about this. I... I you know, the White Rabbit, that's about the only good part of this book, and she really wasn't in the book that much. You know, I, I was 
listening to the podcast from last time that we when we recorded, and you know, I I almost want to say that you know that whole situation with El- this was obviously not in this issue. This was in issue three. The whole situation with Alfred saying, "Oh, White Rabbit was spotted on the other side of town." Same time Bruce Wayne's out to dinner with Jai or Jay or whatever the heck her name is. I. I almost want to say that, that that was thrown in there so that we don't think that she's the White Rabbit. And clearly, if you look at the two characters, they don't look the same. But I don't see any point of having this Jai character in the book if she's not the White Rabbit. Love and, interest? Yeah, well, you know what? Screw love interest. I'm sick of them having a different love interest. You're, you know what? I'm, I'm with you 100% of the way. Yeah, exactly. It's just getting old that, you know, there's... To be, let's see... We have Charlotte Rivers in Detective Comics. We have Jai White in Batman the Dark Knight. Catwoman is in Catwoman. I mean, it's it's just getting ridiculous. I, I'm sorry, but I'm starting to think that Bruce Wayne is a slut and he just sleeps with everybody. <laughs> so, you know, I, I said good things about the editorial team earlier. And, you know, for the most part, I think they're doing a good job. I just think the problem is that they really need to, to reel some of these writers in and say, okay, listen... Bruce Wayne does not need to be with a different woman every single one of your titles. He doesn't. You know, either come up with an idea and stick to the idea and use the same woman or not. Because, quite honestly, there hasn't been a woman that's appeared in any of these titles since Grant Morrison's run on Batman with Jezebel Jett that actually has had any kind of, like, precursor to anything happening in the future. You know, precursor to an event that's actually happening. So, with that being said... There's no point to have all these females, so stop doing it. Two out of five batterings. <laughs> Before I clap for Dustin, I'm actually going to say, I'm just going to disagree with him, because I actually did enjoy this issue more than most, most of the time. And it wasn't really an, a fantastic issue. You know, it wasn't, like, the best thing ever. But I kind of came on positively about it, because I kind of like the feeling of it. I think Paul Jiggins' writing is starting to come into its own. I'm starting to recognize it more in a positive way. One thing I'm, I question is who exactly is narrating. Is it Batman or is it a general third-person narrator? I hope it's Batman. But if it's Batman, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But I like how the fear thing is sort of becoming a little bit amped up. It's a little more subtle, but it's a lot more apparent in this issue without just being incessantly hammered into your head. Fear, fear. Well, some might say it could be. I personally like how the way it's done here, but you're free to disagree. I also like Wonder Woman's cameo. I think... That it was a, to me, if Batman is part of the Justice League, I think at times they are going to like kind of cross paths in each other's titles, one way or another. And I think this was a very good instance of it. You know, she's only in one page, one panel, or two panels, one big, one small. And I think that she was written very well. She looks beautiful, and I just thought it was it was fine. You know, like that that sort of thing kind of should happen if villains break out of his, his prison. You know, and are on on the loose. That's actually a problem that could be potential for the entire country so i really like that i didn't like deathstroke's appearance that was that was worthless but i did like the scarecrow at the end because i it's one of those obvious things where i think everyone's talking about fear lately that like we kind of forget oh wait doesn't isn't there a villain that's all about fear so i felt that that was a good use of him that's also a very good depiction of him by finch and this was sort of an enjoyable comic for me i'm going to come down on it pretty highly but to go to what dustin was saying I think it's not so much, in terms of love interest, I'll keep it, keep it short, but like, I think it's not so much, you know, everyone needs a love interest, but I think it's the idea of Batman that really hasn't applied. 
if you're talking about like if you compare it to Grant Morrison, that was clearly you know used in the storyline with Jezebel Jet. It wasn't just kind of tertiary, but now it's like always oh, a playboy, so he has to have a girlfriend. As though this were Batman and Robin, and he has a pointless girlfriend that does nothing in the in the movie. So I think it's sort of an editorial thing more so than the individual writers. And I agree that it's a stupid idea because as we all know, all women are you know maybe for, for love interest for the for the guys. Isn't that right, Stella? I did like this issue, so I'll give it three and a half out of five batterings. I'm not sure how I felt about this issue because there were parts that I loved and parts that I didn't like at all. I understand that this issue is about Scarecrow, but I find the constant references to fear overpowering, particularly in the sort of poetic way that Jenkins is trying to force. And I think they are forced. All times he's talking about, like, fear is cannibalistic. I just... I don't really get it, and it just feels too over-the-top to me. I do love that this book interweaves with the rest of the DC continuity, particularly, it seems, with Detective Comics. I also really like the relationships that are being established here and how Batman is inadvertently the destruction of these relationships. I do think, however, that they're being pushed far too hard, particularly considering the book is only in its fourth issue. Because I think that these are sort of emotions that should be built up over time. Like, uh, particularly, I think, Gordon was the main one where he needs Bruce as a friend and then Batman is not there for him because he's Batman. And I think that's something that because it's only the fourth issue, it seems really out of the blue, whereas if it was built up over a few more issues, I think it would be something that was really interesting. Maybe not even if it was just four issues of this book. I think it's because of the relaunch as well that it seems like everything should be fresher. And then to have this already in there, it seems a bit too soon for me. I do find it odd, however, that considering this book shares so much continuity with other books... That why Bruce continues to date about five women going along with what Dustin and Don said I do think that the art is increasingly good and I like the direction I just wish it wasn't so repetitive as for the death stroke bit I still thought it was pretty lazy but I still kind of enjoyed the book so I'm going to give this three out of five batterings okay I unfortunately have much to say so I shall do this quickly yeah the dark knight so it looks like we get a clue as to the timeline of this particular book, unless we already knew it. Maybe it's just me and I'm slow. But even if I am the only one who needed cluing in, apparently The Dark Knight takes place during the same timeline as Detective Comics because of the, the face, the face mask. That was the big thing. This book is thick with guest stars. You know, while I particularly liked the Wonder Woman spot, I do wonder what makes this book so special, especially if it is taking place in the past. You know, the, the Justice League probably only recently formed, so it doesn't seem like Batman would come to rely on the team so much. I do like how Wonder Woman begs off on, on helping him, citing the fact that, you know, they have to take down people that he was responsible for. And going off of something that Dustin said the last episode, that he found White Rabbit so attractive? I would say that Wonder Woman right here was probably the most attractively drawn female in this book, but that's just my opinion. Oh, yeah. I am glad that Ivy wasn't in her lair because it, it. I think it led to actually some good storytelling and detective work. I think it probably would have been I don't know if it would have gone over as well if she had been there. 
the message that Gordon leaves is interesting, to say the least. You know, though it seems like a weaker Gordon, as he's depressed, he's frustrated, he's clearly on the defensive. Alfred is such a light character. And yeah, so it is the Dark Knight, going back to the Batman comment I made before. You know, he makes jokes about the White Rabbit, and then, you know, this ice cream stunt. Uh, you know, I think... It's, it's a much-needed rest from the gravity of Batman just to have this lighthearted Alfred. And I think he's always been lighthearted, but it, it really comes off well here. But what happened to Batman's ice cream? Did anyone wonder this? I mean, he brings it to his Batwing, his, his ship there, but it, then it disappears. And he could not have eaten it that fast or he would have gotten a brain freeze. So I just don't know. We've got a random snapshot of White Rabbit, then Deathstroke. Of all the guest stars, I think this is the one that I do not like. Number one, of all the people in the DCU, I feel like Death Deathstroke is the one person that does not need an anti-fear toxin. I mean, what does Deathstroke fear? I mean, he went up against the whole Justice League in Identity Crisis. I don't think this is the kind of guy that would take that. Number two, what is the point anyway? He just hops out of nowhere to attack Batman. It was so random. I don't know. And finally, the narration. Like Gordon's phone call, it seems like Batman is constantly wallowing in self-doubt this entire time. It just seemed very strange. It just comes to a head in the page with the panels of Flash, Jay, Alfred, and Jim. I think it's just a little too heavy, especially for Batman, but perhaps it can be explained with the long-awaited arrival of Scarecrow. I'm actually going to give this book 4 out of 5, despite some like bigger problems or just problems in general that I had with this issue, I really enjoyed it and I think that it was probably the best one so far. So out of four reviews, that is going to give Batman the Dark Knight number four a total of three out of five veterans. Let's move into our next book, Batman Odyssey number three. Stay cool, bad boy. Batman Odyssey number three, written and drawn by Neil Adams. As we come to expect, Bruce Wayne, still wearing his Green Lantern t-shirt, is talking to his unknown friend. We then cut to Robin in the center of the Earth, trying to get a bat mount so that he can track down Batman. The trolls turn on Dick, however, and after fighting a lot of them off, Deadman appears, very much tangible. Deadman proceeds to beat the crap out of the trolls, and then he and Robin take their bat mounts, accompanied by some particularly awkward dialogue. We then cut to Jamoth Bok, Batman and Primus, each on their own bat mounts, as they notice what appears to be a war, but as they approach the battle, they are forced back by a laser fire. To escape the blasts, the group fly into a camouflaged hangar. The hangar appears to have an odd enchantment because after entering it, everybody appears to get a lot hipper, and we're treated to such gems as a righteous beef and what's your poison. After the group arm up, they head out to battle, and whilst Jamroth and Primus are shooting everything that moves, Batman is simply kicking ass and chewing bubblegum. Oh, and finding out that he has superpowers, because of the lower gravity. Gets to a point where Batman realises that it is no longer war, but execution. So Batman calls an end to the killing, and instructs that all of the enemies should be rounded up as prisoners. At this point, Sensai appears at the battlefield. Turns out that Sensai doesn't have Talia or Tatsinda, but Batman fights anyway, and loses. However, Sensai leaves Batman to fight another day, and walks off into the horizon deflecting rockets with his fists as he goes. To be continued. Alright, Batman Odyssey number three. Let me start off with saying, if you understood anything that Joe just said, well, Joe did the best job of that he possibly could have translating what it was actually in those pages. Let's first start off with Robin vs. Trolls. Robin vs. Trolls. That's all I'm going to say. Let's move on to 
Batman can lift up a tank. That's right. Batman can lift up a tank. Let's go on to Deadman being completely visible. That's right. Deadman being completely visible. I, I'm honestly just getting tired of reviewing this series, and quite honestly, if I know it ultimately would be up to me, but I, I would love to stop having to read this book and really not have to review it. Because quite honestly, I, I feel like I am saying the exact same thing. The The story sucks. The story is absolutely horrible. I have no idea what the point of this story is other than Neil Adams writing a story with Batman in it. But Batman isn't... It's not a Batman story. It's a Neil Adams story involving trolls, involving weird creatures, involving Photoshop crystals. It... To be quite honest, it, it is a horrible story. And, yeah, I there's... And I don't care... You know, I'm still waiting for that email from listeners saying... Oh, but wait, you know, this is what's really going on, and this is why it's so good, because it's not happening. There's a reason why Batman Odyssey is barely breaking the top 100 comics for the month, and that's that's pretty sad, I, I have to say. Neil Adams, I said this last episode, and I'll say it again, Neil Adams' legendary status when it comes to the Batman universe is slowly depreciating with every issue that gets released for this series. So if I was Neil Adams, I'd say, you know what, DC Comics, thanks anyway, don't put it out. Just let it go as one of those things that never gets finished because I'm making myself out to be a fool. One out of five batteries. Well, I'm back on track and am agreeing with Dustin in that this story is un- incomprehensible. And we are really repeating ourselves. If you are digging this story, then it's cool. You know, every, everybody likes something. But we aren't. And it's not because, you know, like we have different preferences or we can't tell what's going on. The art isn't good. I think it has some interesting points, but by the end of it, Batman just looks weird and sketchy and, and scratchy and not very fun to look at. All the closeness of the faces. This is something that's always been with this miniseries, and proof that Neil Adams just needs to stick with like commissions and stop actually drawing sequential art because everyone's mugging in this comic. Everyone's like you know scorching their noses and their and their eyebrows and pouting their lips, and it's just not that's that's not endearing. The best part about Neil Adams' artwork in the seventies was that. He had such a mastery of anatomy and, you know, facial expressions and subtleties and nuance. And now it's like, look at, look how crazy it can make somebody look that might remind you of somebody, how somebody looks in real life. But it's all just, like, ugly people. And the story, I didn't even realize that those are actually magicians because I think I was just trying to read the text. But, yeah, there are freaking magicians in this book. And also it seems like Neil Adams is ch- trying to chase his older stories with, with the sensei and martial arts and stuff. But you need Daniel O'Neill for that, bro. Yeah, one out of five batterings. I give up. This was a, this was an issue that made me go from haha to huh, because it didn't make any sense. I just lost all sense of plot following. It wasn't awful, and it was just kind of more the same. But I didn't get why Batman was so happy for murder to happen like all around him. I didn't get why Dick like wasn't more concerned with Dead Man's relationship with his parents. I didn't get the fight with Sensei and how Batman's belt was, like, taken off halfway through. And I definitely didn't get the scene in the hangar. It's been said all throughout the series that characterizations have been off in this title, but I think it was the scene with Robin that really, made, like, drove it home. Because I just think that characterization is wrong. It's not just off, it's wrong for a character to meet someone who knew his parents and worked with his parents. I think, unless I've got this 
wrong, but I think Dick actually even knew Dead Man. So yeah. for him to just sort of pass it off, and he was talking about his parents, and then he's just like, huh, you shouldn't be wearing makeup. And it's just weird. And this series is really hard work to read and even harder to review, and I think that's just caught up with me now, so two out of five batterings. Oh, okay. You know, the problem with this comic is I feel like it never picks up right where the other issue leaves off. I mean, the other one had Bruce standing there appalled because basically he found out they were cannibals and they were yum-yum-yumming or num-num-numming on some other anthropomorphic-shaped figures. But this actually picks up right away with Batman or Bruce in his GL shirt talking to someone who is more and more seeming to be Clark Kent because now you actually see his his cuffs. And there was also a thing where he says, did you look at the photographs? And then the other guy says, well, you know I'm not actually a... I know, I know. So who knows? Okay, which Robin is this? But I think it was already answered that it is indeed Dick. That's what I thought it was. But why is he wearing the Tim Drake costume from the Young Justice era? I have no idea. I can't answer ca- that one. <laughs> you can? Yeah. Okay. It's it because Neil Adams designed that costume and he just prefers it. So I thought okay. I'll, I'll draw him in that. Okay. Well... You know, whatever causes confusion, I guess it doesn't matter. In any case, I guess he is tasty, but we all knew that, right? And and Ryan knew that as well, and Starfire, and, and Babs, and Tarantula. Because really, those weird things want to take a nip, don't they? Dead man randomly appearing and hitting people with a frying pan. Why is he here? Why does it make sense that Robin can hear him? What is going on? A wizard out of Fantasia? An alien? Now all of a sudden Batman has powers. Batman just accepts that there's a war and he goes with it. There's a duel. Oh, okay. I don't know. Zero out of five for me. I have no idea what's going on. All right. So Batman Odyssey number three gets a total of one out of five batterings. Moving into our next issue, Catwoman number four. changing our line of work, Holly. You spent the last of our money on that? It's not even Halloween. Sometimes, Holly, you have to spend money to make money. Selena! Catwoman number four, are you still in the game? Writer Judd Winnick, artist Guillaume March. The end is in the beginning, as we see Catwoman fall landing on a car and later landing on a dumpster. Incapacitated, she thinks back to how this all started. When we last left Selina, she was burning evidence with the dead body of her friend Lola right next to her, and Selina in her Catwoman outfit, just as the cops burst in. Some fast thinking, a bottle of whiskey, and a fire grant Selina the time she needs to get out of the building with Lola, unfortunately destroying Lola's hard-earned home. At Lola's funeral, finally, Selena thinks back to when she was younger and Lola took her in and taught her. On her way out, Selena catches sight of an old friend, Gwen, or Gwendolyn Altamont, a girl with whom she used to run when they were both younger. Over drinks, the two discuss Lola, and Gwen asks if Selena is still in the game, telling her that if she ever needs a hand, Gwen could help because she fences now. 
In a different part of town, a Detective Alvarez talks to a Lieutenant Winston about a particular crime scene. It seems that Alvarez is new to Major Crimes Robbery Division, getting booted from homicide because he found a deputy mayor in drag with two prostitutes, crystal meth, and oxycodone. Oh my. Now, Alvarez has 17 cases which he feels are all done by the same perp. The alarm being cut, roof access, no prints, and no damage. Back with our feline lead, Selena has a new score ripping off drug dealers. She got her info from Bertram, a man who's kept loyal by his desire to sleep with Selena. Selena gets the money, is then shocked, literally, by a bolt of lightning. She crash lands on a car, the CF panel one, page one, and we see a woman named Reach, a metahuman who looks like a cross between Ultimate Silver Sable and Kate Bishop, both from Marvel. I apologize. Reach tells Catwoman that she messed up right before she throws her into a window. Catwoman takes the offensive just to get a few hits in to buy time before she hightails it out of there. Unfortunately for her, Catwoman is in a bad position and is thrown high into the air above Gotham by Reach's power. Well, crap. All right, so Catwoman number four. This was an interesting issue. Um, a couple little problems that I, I, I see with this is, number one, Selena makes a point to say that she had to basically let some information out that Lola was a fence so that she could cover herself so that the cops wouldn't come after her. That doesn't make any sense because why would cops who go to someone's house, who find a dead body, who find someone burning evidence inside of their house, and then cause an explosion to set the entire building on fire, then not believe that that person was the person who actually killed the person. Yeah. I, you know, I know the GCPD isn't always, you know, isn't full of a bunch of smart people, but really? I find that a little hard to believe that anybody in the right mind would actually be able to believe that Catwoman had nothing to do with uh, the murder of Lola and somehow some random mobster killed her. I find it very coincidental that this character Gwen appears the same time as this character Reach appears. I wonder if the two have something to do with each other. I guess we'll have to wait and see. But uh, if they don't, that's, again, way too big of a coincidence. And I don't see this being the same situation as, like, Lincoln Martin and uh, Scott Snyder's Batman run. I don't think Judd Winnick is as good of a writer as Scott Snyder in the regards of being able to have these random characters appear to throw us off. I thought the art was alright. It didn't. There really wasn't a whole lot of unnecessary cheesecake, for the most part, in, in comparison to some of the other issues. I do find it interesting that uh, they make a point to say that Selena gets information from a person because that person wants to have sex with her. I don't know that they really need to throw that out there, but then again, I guess this is New Catwoman, and sex is what it's all about. So, overall, I, it was it was an alright issue. Three out of five. Bad. Yeah, it was it was okay, I suppose. It didn't really leave an impression on me one way or another. I mean, I, I'm i still kind of liking Gillian Marsh's art. You know, I, I like seeing his art wherever, but I don't like what he draws, because I don't know if it's a script or whatever, but it just kind of bugs me. I can be more, more specific about that later on, but the, the general story I find is okay. I mean... So so Lola dies, and so she, Selena needs to set up shop somewhere else. And so she's sad. I assume that there's a, this big emotional trauma that was that was displayed in the last issue. But, like, not the full-page splash, but that one shot where she's back to sealing stuff again. She's just like, please smile on her face. So I assume it's like, oh, it's back to business as usual. <laughs> and I kind of find that. I, I'm wondering if that was in the script or if that was in, in the art. 
similarly, when she's fighting Reach, which I think is kind of a dumb name, when Stelina is like sort of like scratching away at her and there's that like kind of red highlighted panel, like apparently her clothes are so tight and her boobs are so big that like the zipper line up, up on the on the front of her body is like bursting at the seams. And that's just stupid. And it's, it has nothing to do with, like, sexiness or whatever, because, like, if she was... Why, why would she be wearing a, a, a suit that tight? And I'm, I'm being serious. Like, honestly, like, why... How how does that function as, you know, a cat blurk? Or how does that help her or whatever? And you can't tell me that that's because she was fighting this person, because otherwise it would just tear her somewhere else, just by the nature of that suit. It just... It was an interesting artistic detail, but the logic of it was so was so illogical that it kind of like took all interest out of it. And that kind of just, again, this is a, a, a sex and action book, you know, that which sort of shows how much thoughts being put into it. I'm sorry, but like, I, th- I found the, the ending kind of interesting, but overall the issue, eh, I didn't hate it. I didn't love it. It was, it was kind of just there for me. Two and a half out of five batterings. Yeah. I thought that this issue was good. There's nothing that particularly stood out. I appreciate March's artwork now in this series. But I thought the Selena, I thought the Selena was very quick to change from, like, the height of depression to just, oh hey, I haven't seen you in a while, and I thought that was really jarring. I like that. I do like that Catwoman in this book only steals from like drug dealers and just steals sort of ill-gotten money, which makes her fractionally less morally ambiguous. But that is part of her character, I suppose. As for Reach, I don't think it was the same character as the. Same the new character, whatever her name was, because they seem to be different ethnicities. But that might have been art or colouring, I'm not sure. Will be a big coincidence if they're both just new, like a new villain and a new character all at the same time. I'm not sure. But I'll give this two and a half out of five batterings. Yeah, Joe, that was actually pretty good. You you happened upon that. The the she's kind of being like a Robin Hood that kind of just popped into my head that she's got this Robin Hood complex on, steal from the the CD but take for herself. So I guess not exactly Robin Hood. Anyways, this is actually I thought a decent issue. I'm happy to say that at least. You know, the first issue did have me or the first page did have me pause for a little while because I get the sense that we are seeing two different time periods in these panels. The one will happen right at the end where she smashed into the car. But then I feel like the dumpster panel was probably what will happen in the next issue because she was falling from a great height. So that I thought that was a little strange. I think, you know, it's been two issues, and we're still seeing dead Lola, and that's kind of bothersome to me. I was starting to get a little nerves by continually seeing her dead body, so I'm actually finally, I'm glad she's finally in the ground now. I think it's good. I think it's way too convenient to meet this friend of Selena's. Selena needs a new fence, and look, she finds Gwen. Selena goes on a call, and now she's attacked by Reach. You know, are all stories like this where... You ask, and it happens. I don't know. And who is this Detective Alvarez who pops out of nowhere? You know, is Catwoman's cast growing exponentially? I feel like, again, I would much rather learn about the main character and then fill in the cast rather than be drowned by new people right off the bat. This issue was heavy on the exposition, but we are never without some sort of sexy scene. This one was a little, shall we say, disturbing. (laughs) Okay, three out of five batterings. Alright, so out of four reviews, Catwoman number four gets a total of three out of five bad ranks. Let's move into our next issue, which is Nightwing. Had you 
ever considered that all this is your fault? Your presence creates these animals. <laughs> Number four. Written by Kyle Higgins, art by Trevor McCarthy, who steps in for Eddie Burrows for this one issue. The issue starts off with Barbara Gordon, aka Batgirl, chasing down what appears to be a shapeshifter by the name of Spinebinder. And next thing you know, we cut to a scene as uh, Spinebinder gets away. We cut to a scene of Dick Grayson lying in bed with Raya. They seemingly are both naked, discussing what the relationship actually is and what they should not make it out to be if it's not going to be. We cut to a scene inside the circus tent where Mark, the acrobat, and the clown from the circus run into somebody who looks exactly like Raya, but it's none other than Barbara Gordon. She is directed to the circus train where she runs into Dick Grayson, who is in the same room as Raya. Imaginely, them standing across from each other, they look almost like they could be sisters. Raya excuses herself, and Barbara makes herself at home, basically ignoring the fact that in her own series, Batgirl, she fought with Dick Grayson and told him to leave her alone. The next thing you know, the two of them are out and about as Batgirl and Nightwing working side by side to find the spine binder. And they, they are talking to each other about a number of different things related to uh, the psycho mystery. They're talking about the relationship between Dick and Raya. A lot of different things. What ends up happening is Batgirl is sitting on the balcony watching. And Nightwing is going down to get a closer look. It turns out that... Somebody appears as Nightwing above her, about to take a rock to her head. Well, it appears that that was not Nightwing, but actually Spinebinder, since he's a shapeshifter. And Nightwing comes out and takes him out. The fight ensues between Spinebinder, the mobsters at the bottom that they were watching in the first place, Nightwing, and Batgirl. Eventually, they figure out that his weakness is, in fact, electricity, and then they mix it with... They basically turn him into glass. Afterwards, the two of them, after they make the apprehension, excuse themselves back to the circus train, where they have no problem changing in front of each other. And then Barbara excuses herself and says, Well, hope to see you in Gotham. As she's leaving, Raya says, You know, you guys are pretty close, aren't you? And she says, Yeah, we are. But it's nothing more than friends. Dick then realizes that maybe, just maybe, the saying that Haley said was not something of a warning but more of a location of where something was was at so he he goes to the circus finds a panel inside of one of the benches opens it up and finds a book with a number of names in it including richard grayson and that is nightwing number four. so that was nightwing number four interesting issue i guess my biggest concern is the fact that you know last month batgirl number three featured nightwing guest starring batgirl and we basically saw the two of them fight Batgirl getting pretty pissed off, chopping off a piece of her hair and saying, leave me the hell alone. Less than a month later, she's looking up Dick Grayson to help her basically find this person that she lost inside a crowd of people because she can't work by herself. Yeah, I don't know exactly how that works because the whole point of Dick going to see her in Batgirl was for him to say, Hey, I don't know that you're ready to do this by yourself. And her say, you know, back off. I can do it all by myself. And then a month later, wait, maybe I need some help. I'm going to come and work.
work with you down in Miami. Yeah, I I don't really know what to say about that. I I mean, it basically, this is this is the feeling that I get out of it. Kyle Higgins read the script for Batgirl number three and is like, oh, okay, Nightwing's guest starring in Batgirl, let me read that script. Huh, okay. That was an interesting take on their relationship. Well, I've got to write us I gotta write an issue with number four with Batgirl guest starring. I think I'm going to take it in a completely different direction and try to at least give some resolve to their relationship so that uh, it's not left so so it's not left so dysfunctional. So he takes it and he basically changes it completely around and now they have no problem changing in front of each other inside the circus train. Which, you know, okay, you know, I keep saying, you know, I keep making the point about them changing in front of each other, but the fact is, you know, yes, they've they've worked together for years, yes, they've dated, but to me, if I was with somebody else and my ex-girlfriend was stripping down to her underwear next to me, I think my current significant other would have a problem with my ex-girlfriend being in her underwear next to me. The fact that Dick doesn't have a problem, well... We, we know that Dick wants to get back with Barbara. That's ultimately what it is, because essentially Raya is Barbara, just not Batgirl. She's got the red hair, she's got the body type. You know, they stood right across from each other, and essentially I think there was maybe about an inch in height difference, and that was about it. Everything else was exactly the same. So I, I did like Mark's comment, Mark uh, the acrobat from the circus, about, well, we definitely know what Dick Grayson's type is, because, well, that seems to be the truth. Um, and he wasn't the only one thinking it, because I'm sure people were thinking that back when Riot first appeared in Nightwing. Overall, I thought it was a good issue. I think Trevor McCarthy, you know, stepped in for Eddie Barrows in this issue and did a decent job. It's a little, obviously it was a little bit different than the art that we've been seeing in the past issues, but I don't think it was, I don't think it was bad by any means. And I think that Trevor McCarthy is one of those artists where I'd like to see him as a regular artist on a series. I don't know that it would be specifically Nightwing. But I think that he could do a really good job with a series. Maybe maybe something in the lines of Batgirl or Birds of Prey, because I think that he, he could do a decent job with the females by not doing it so cheesecake. Anyway, I thought it was a good issue. I'm going to give it four out of five batterings. This issue to me was a lot like Batman in that I kind of come down on it positively, but there was one aspect that I really didn't like. And I suppose I should I should keep keep my focus on the, the superior action plot and you know just pay attention to that because everything else is kind of you know window dressing but <laughs> I'm not because I did not like all of Raya's scenes it's, I really hate her now or I hate this too strong word I do, I do not like her character because every, every time she's in the she's in the book she just causes like like confusing and annoying conflict when Dick says oh let's go out to the movie us a couple and then she says whoa we both know what this is you know, we'll keep having sex until you solve the mystery of who killed old Pop Healy. And then we'll be done. Like, who does that? I, I don't care. I mean, that was just stupid. And to me, it, it really, like, makes Dick Grayson out to be, like, this character he never really was. Because there's a lot of talk about, oh, Dick Grayson, he's been with so many women. He's a womanizer. He's a playboy, whatever. If you, ever, if you actually read the history, which I know DC doesn't want us to do, if you're actually familiar with Nightwing's character, yeah, he's attractive and a lot of girls like him, but he's not really, like, this kind of, like, you know, Tony Stark X-esque kind of playboy. He really isn't. He's very much, you know, a very caring, you know, kind of like guy that he was in this issue. And now it's trying to portray him as this like guy who's just with whatever girl. And that thing bothers me because there's no real meaning to that. There's no real point to it, whether it's a character flaw or a story point or whatever. It's just it's just meant to show really annoying relationships 
that I frankly don't need in my Nightwing comic book. I will say, though, that I did actually enjoy Barbara's appearance here. I liked how Higgins took this, like Dustin said, that he saw he saw the script, possibly, for Batgirl number three, and said, well, let me try to go off from this. And basically, he kind of redeemed Barbara, because, as we all know, she was extremely annoying in that issue with, with Dick for no real reason. But now she's like, well, that was kind of dumb of me. Let's, let's, let's kiss and make up, figuratively speaking. And, and I liked her personality in this. I think this is the first time I've read Batgirl in the New 52 where I, I liked her presence as Batgirl. But I, I did like the art by Trevor McCarthy. He was a welcome replacement for Eddie Barrows. I'm liking Eddie Barrows stuff. Trevor McCarthy's uh, style is dynamic enough that were, I thought it was, a, it was a welcome change. So if he and Eddie Barrows were kind of the regular on this title, regulars on this title, like Jock and Francisco Francavella were on Detective Comics a few months ago, that would be very that would be ideal for me. Overall, this is all right. Another all right issue. Bindbender kind of reminds me of, of a static shock villain, Tarmac. But it did better for Barbara's character. I really don't like Raya. But Dick Grayson's still being written okay, I guess. I'll give it three out of five batterings. I'm very much along the same lines as Donovan for this issue. Instead of thinking Spinebender was a static shock villain, I thought he was more like Terminator 2. But I think with the art, I think I, I prefer Eddie Barrows as an artist because I think. Trevor McCarthy is very cartoony, which I'm not always a fan of, but I think it really works in this, and I think it's because it was so light-hearted and it fitted the issue, I think. And I think it's sort of a fast pace because I was getting a bit bored of Nightwing, and I think this issue actually picked up a bit for me. I, I enjoyed it definitely more than the last issue. But there was, again, there was nothing but like Catwoman that nothing really stood out in particular. And it was an okay read, but it's something that I'm not going to really... It's not very memorable, and... I, I think Barbara Gordon's characterization in this, it's definitely different to what... to how we saw her react with Dick in the Batgirl series, but it doesn't seem so distant from her characterization in the the rest of the book. I think it was a bit odd to have that sudden change when it comes to their relationship but as for her like general personality and stuff I don't think it's too distant to that it seems like a different character I'm still sort of looking forward to seeing where this series is going I think like I said this piqued my interest a bit but I'm only going to give this a middle of the road two and a half out of five batterings because there was nothing that jumped out at me uh, let me tell you about shippers really quick, something I just learned. And you know how you can either meld the names together? So if you wanted to say Stella and Donovan, you could say Stellavan, something like that. Well, I just learned that... Okay, well, I just learned that if you take each individual's name and you equate it into a number, so, you know, like, Dick would be like 27 because you would add up the individual numbers. And then you put it with the other person. So if Dick is 27 and Raya is 45, then you put the number together, it's 2745. If you want Dick and Babs to ship together, 2724. I just, this is very new to me, so I thought I would share it with you. Anyways, I loved Babs in this issue, and I think it's really best to ignore back row number three completely when reading this issue and probably in any other circumstance. I love the opening scene, and while I doubt Babs would be able to do all that fancy cycle work, it is still fun to see. I mean, she does do some crazy things in Batman Family, so I guess I can allow it. 
Okay, so maybe it's not Dick who is the jerk. Raya just wants to be friends with benefits? Who are these people? Oh, man, I, I love the interaction between Babs and Raya. You know, it's as if in that one panel, Raya sees all the similarities <laughs> between the two of them, and maybe she kind of realizes something. But I, it was just seeing them together is very interesting. Babs's voice, I think, is so spot on in this issue. She's carefree and fun, and nothing seems forced. And that is the way we want Barbara Gordon to be. Despite the previous Batgirl issue, I, you know, this team-up really seems right and fun, and the conversations seem just as they would be. What's she like? She's nice. Well, I'd hope the girl you're sleeping with is nice. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I, obviously, like, the context, and or, well, the content is odd, but it just seems, like, spot on, the the tone and, and the sarcasm and everything. Some of the best art, I think, that's come out of this book, I especially love the coloring, but, you know, I may be biased since this guy major. And he did a lot of stuff for Batgirl. The final scenes with Babs, while I'm a little uncomfortable having Dick and Babs change in front of each other, end on a sweet and high note showing us that their friendship is intact and really giving us hope for their future. Shipper. As for Raya, who cares? The one downfall for having this issue is the fact that this, like the Batgirl issue with Nightwing, distracts from the main story, and I feel like this psycho storyline has been going on you know, for a while. But I don't think I'm paranoid in saying that. I believe Batgirl number three and this issue here were both intended to tell fans, Dick and Baz fans, that that is not going to happen for the near, if not the far future. And they're just kind of getting that out of the way and putting them in their respective couples that don't involve each other. But overall, this was probably the best issue I think that's come out so far. I don't know. Four out of five batterings. So Nightwing number four gets a total of three and a half out of five batterings. Let's move into our next issue, Red Hood and the Outlaws number four. Enemies of society or victims of a revenge-crazed vigilante? You decide on Gotham Exposed. Red Hood and the Outlaws number four. Written by Scott Lobdell, illustrated by Kenneth Rockefeller. We begin the issue with Jason Todd and Roy Harper at a local bar, essentially, hitting on women as they always do because, hey, all guys do that. And Jason gets into a bar fight with some girl's boyfriend. Wouldn't you know it, that gets him arrested. So while Roy and Jason are being located to the nearby police headquarters, we see Starfire flying above, kind of monologuing internally with information she already knows when she's suddenly attacked by this monster-like dragon figure. This green monster with, like, scales and almost, like... Ears that kind of resemble Man-Bat, if you want to know the truth. We also learn more of his inner monologue. He says he's been waiting for this for five years. He hates Starfire and all the Tamaranians, and he, yeah, he pretty much has a grudge. Downtown, we see Roy waiting outside while Jason interrogates the, the police deputy, handcuffed her, and pretty much looking through to see if she knows anything about the Untitled. When suddenly he is... He has a hand go through the, the small of his back, and learns that the, the police deputy is, in fact, an untitled member in disguise. Roy comes to the rescue and fires several arrows in the back of her, back of her head when she turns around and says, You fool! Everyone knows that my weakness is copper! And this, yeah, everyone knows. So out of, out of the arrows comes, it looks like a, a grappling hook, right through her head, obviously made of copper. We then see this, this monster's backstory where, as a child, he, he and his parents were in a car accident, where a Tamaranian warship smashed into their car and killing his parents. He dedicated the rest of his life to science and figured out the cause and, and origin of the ship 
and want to know more and more about the alien race, which are the Tamarians. And we don't get the rest of his backstory. Starfire decides to punch him while he's monologuing. And, but we assume that he turned himself into this to fight her. At least that's the impression that I got. Back at downtown, the woman who is the untitled team member, she, it seems like maggots are growing out of her head. And that, could be, that could be an art mistake, but it seems that her head is split in half, and she's turning into a monster. Roy and Jason hoof it, and while Starfire is still battling the monster and runs into Tamaranian's transubstantiator, because you can just find those, Roy witnesses Jason become the Red Hood by putting on his red helmet, and they, they notice the explosion where Starfire is. Jason tells him that, you know, he needs to focus on this, this fight right now. So Roy goes off, tries to help Starfire, while Jason goes up against the all-cast untitled member. To be continued in Arsenal Unleashed. All right, Red Hood and the Outlaws, number four. This was an interesting issue. I like the idea. Well, I like the fact that they're, they're continuing to build on it. Although I, I don't really know what's going on with the character who's fighting Starfire because that to me is just out of left field for me because I'm not real familiar with Starfire's past history nor do I know that it really even her past history really matters when it comes to this new story. I do have to say I think it's interesting that maybe it's just me but uh, we got that memory from the last issue of uh, Roy Harper and his basically his his best memory is fighting Killer Croc, aka Waylon Jones, and in this issue he makes a statement saying that if his AA sponsor Waylon knew oh, yeah. that he was drinking, that uh, not that he's drinking but he's at a bar he'd be pretty upset. So I have to wonder is you know is Killer Croc having actually has relationship with Roy Harper that. I want to see into something, whether or not it is or not. I, I want to see what, what what the deal is with that, because I think that could be kind of interesting. The whole thing with Red Hood, uh, quite honest, the, the whole Untitled thing seems uh, a little odd, and it seems like it's carrying on longer than it should. I thought we were going to start finding out about some of these characters and their history, and by now it's issue four and we still haven't figured out a whole lot more than you know their best their their favorite memories in issue three so i'd really like to see more of that the one thing i do have to say about the art is i like the art i i love kenton rockfart's art but the one weird thing i'm noticing is that for some reason if you look at all of the females they all look exactly the same body type yes like every single one of them look exactly the same they might be a different race they might be a different color they might be wearing different clothes, but almost every single one of them have the exact same body type. And that to me is odd. I mean, that's not to say that, you know, there isn't an average body type. But the fact is, why is it that, like, when there's that scene in the beginning of the issue where they're all sitting at the bar and the cop shows up. And then you've got that, the dark-haired woman sitting next to him. And then you compare those two women to Starfire. Every single one of them has the exact same body type. It's just, that's really weird. But overall, I think the issue was, it was a little bit above average. Three and a half out of five batterings. I am sure that the listeners here are kind of tired of me going on about this. Not only about this this title, about, about like why specifically I don't like this title. But that's the beauty of this this cast, that you know there are three other wonderful co-hosts that can kind of get into it. So you can just like skip over if, if you're tired of hearing this. But I really don't like... The, the treatment of women in, in this comic, I don't, because it, it sucks, honestly. 
the first page is Jason and Todd on, you know, and they're on their excellent adventure. Basically, basically like, having these, hitting on these girls or having these girls hit on them. And, like, it's not so much that they're, you know, there's, there's flirtation and all that stuff going on. I'm not going to say every time a character flirts with somebody, it's, it's, it's misogynistic or whatever. That would be dumb. But it's just the nature of it and, like, the, like the undertones. Because we see Jason tear these guys apart. And for all the, the people know, he could be a ser- serial killer. But then the women, the woman, the bartender goes, call me. Like Justin said, all the women have the same body type. Starfire's costume is like, if you thought her costume before Flashpoint was redonkulous, you know, that, that has nothing on this. Oh, you know, the women have the same, you know, they have the same cups, cup size. They're wearing hot pants, you know, and, and mid-dress. It's just, and aren't they in the freaking Arctic? And like in the middle of snow and ice? Why is the bartender wearing like hot pants and a, and a mid-dress? This is stupid. This is absolutely stupid. For the rest of the issue, I, I don't care about this man bat wannabe's angst against the Tamaranians. Starfire's monologue is kind of annoying because she's like, I'm a princess and I'm with these two clowns for no reason. And I know this, but I want to tell you know this, reader. It's just lousy, lousy writing. I don't care what's going on with the, with the all cast or the untitled or whatever. Because we never knew about much of them from the first place. We're just thrown information about something and just said, okay, go with it. Roy Harper is continuously annoying. Why, oh why... Is he so subservient to Jason Todd when he's at least a few years older? I don't care if he's a drug addict or a recovering drug addict. I don't even mind so much that he that Waylon Jones, aka Killer Croc, is his AI sponsor. I find that kind of amusing, although it is a bit of WTH moment. <laughs> but whatever. I mean, there was one interesting part about this where Starfire like slowly says to herself, "Richard," as she's falling out of consciousness. I'm not sure how to take that, whether she actually remembers who Richard is or not. She could be. It could be several Richards. She could think. She could. Try to be talking about Roy, for all we know. Whatever. But the ending was kind of interesting. The best part about this title, I will say, I will say a positive, that I think this is the best Jason Todd's been written, possibly since he died. In that, you know, he's not, you know, this, like, wannabe rocker, kind of, like, anti-hero. He does what he wants to, and he's very, very badass, honestly. And I think that that is proven each and every issue. But that is, like, a crouton on the, the salad of crap that I think this title is. I don't like this. But I hope people who do are enjoying it. One out of five batterings. I actually thought this was the best issue of the series so far. The series, or the issues, don't seem very connected to me. Because there, there is story progression, but it seems sort of we jump from one thing to the next, and there's, there's not very much story progression in each issue. But the story in the art is very thematic and cinematic, and I like that you can kind of read each story as a standalone, because... When one issue doesn't make any sense, like the last one, the next one, I find very enjoyable, which was this one. I like seeing Starfire talk in her native tongue. I thought that was quite funny when she was distressed because I've always been told that you can find a person's true language by what they swear in. And I like seeing Jason and Roy's relationship explored more here as well. I don't really see this as a bat title, but like Don, I really like seeing... Jason Todd evolve into a more likable character and I do think that he's written really well in this and I understand that this is supposedly going to focus more on Jason Todd and I hope it does I quite like Corey's villain I thought he looked a bit like what would happen if you fed a gremlin titan after midnight and I thought it looked pretty cool I'm kind of looking forward to the next issue seeing where it goes but by the way the series has been going I probably won't like the next issue but they'll like the one afterwards I'm going to give this 3 out of 5 batterings. 
No more. No more. <laughs> okay, so now Kill Croc is Roy's sponsor. How weird is that? It, uh, within this book is contained two stories, which have absolutely nothing to do with one another. And there is no reason why they both needed to be together in one issue. You are split between the action of the two stories, and to be honest, I don't care about either. But Starfire seems worse, mainly due to this, you know, Crux's forced sob story. I don't know. Is everyone's, like, family going to be killed in some sort of car accident? Because that's what happened over in Batgirl. Random bar fights, AA talk. This issue has me so sidetracked that I don't really even recognize the main purpose of the all-cast storyline. When will the pain end? He doesn't ask me to stay. He doesn't need to. He's the Red Hood. <laughs> With writing like that, who needs to read fan fiction? Zero out of oh, five. Oh, <laughs> Zero out of five batterings. All right, so out of four reviews, Red Hood and the Outlaws gets a total of two out of five batterings. Let's move into our next issue, Birds of Prey number four. You skunk and I simply call us the one and only Birds of Prey number four, absolutely mental. Writer, Dwayne Sprzynski, artist Jesus Saez, and colors June Chung. As the issue picks up right where the previous left off, the birds are in a major pickle on a train. The mysterious antagonist is whispering sweet nothings and a nursery rhyme in Dinah's ear. And just as Dinah is ready to sacrifice her life by leaping out of the train in order to save the lives of those on the train, Starling pulls her in and tells her there is another way to stop the detonation of Dinah's brain bomb. Crack! Dinah wakes up with Zac Efron looking at her, a black and blue eye, and Starling waving a broken hand at her. It looks like Zac Efron, a.k.a. Trevor Cahill, the lab tech that we first met in issue number two, has found a way to disable the experimental stroke treatment drug. This lights a fire under Dinah since this gives the team a way to stop the bad guys. Before leaving, Cahill considers reporting Dinah, backs off and asks her to have a drink with him, then takes that back after realizing mixing alcohol with that stroke drug is probably not a good idea. Poor Trevor. Wah, wah, wah. As Dinah and Ev run out, Ev fills Dinah in on what happened post-fist-to-jaw action. Ivy was struggling to stop the train due to a pile-on of bad guys. Katana distracts those bad guys by somehow leading them out onto the top of the train. Starling finds Ivy standing all cool in a car and quickly realizes that it is not really Ivy, but not before getting stabbed in the arm. Ivy does manage to stop the train. Katana knocks out the judge, and Ev goes for the press aid. All the while, Ivy does her... <laughs> Creepy toxic seduction on a guy who may or may not be Donovan's brother. <laughs> Ev continues to explain to Dinah that the creeps in the invisible suits are called the cleaners, and they work for Choke, a guy into mind control experiments. The judge and the aide weren't walking bombs, but were actually broadcasting everything they saw and heard and were undetectable to all bug sweepers and anti-spy gear. As Ev's story wraps up, we see all the birds meeting on the roof of the partial address that Ivy was able to collect from Donovan's brother. Well, look who's here. Na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na, Batgirl. And she's happy to help? 
Each of the five team members find her own way into a seemingly empty floor. But wait, there's more. And if you call now, you will receive one laser which will stop bending the light around the suits of the cleaners and reveal that there's an entire army of them surrounding you. And as the birds make a tight circle, Batgirl gives orders, a voice whispers in their ears, and poof, they are out on the street with no memory of the situation. All right, Birds of Prey number four. Interesting issue. Um, I guess the the most interesting thing to me that happened in this entire issue is that Batgirl appears out of nowhere and is willing to help the Birds of Prey. It hasn't even been a couple months since Batgirl first appeared in Birds of Prey and basically told Black Canary, hey, guess what? You're running from the law. I can't have anything to do with you. You guys are horrible. I don't want anything to do with you. I don't want anything to do with you. But I'm going to show up and fight on your first mission because I want to, and now I want to be part of the Birds of Prey. Now, clearly she doesn't actually say she's going to be part of Birds of Prey. She, nobody actually says anything other than, hey, thanks for lending a hand. But we do find out that you know when they poof or magically on the street, we do see that the characters are actually the cliffhanger. Oh, one of the birds is missing. And lo and behold, one of the, the only persons missing from that scene is Batgirl. So does that mean that Batgirl is part of the Birds of Prey? Well, we know that that's going to happen because we, we know the solicitations. We know that Batgirl is a, she is a member of the Birds of Prey. But it is interesting how quickly that all changed from issue number one. I thought the art was good. This lab tech that magically reappears again, I don't know what they're trying to go for with this lab tech. I guess it's supposed to be maybe a possible love interest, or I guess at least a stalker for Black Canary. The thing that interests me the most about this series is just the dynamic of the characters. You mix Katana, who's psychologically unstable, with Poison Ivy, with Black Canary, with Starling, who I know nothing about, and then you throw Batgirl into the mix. This could be a really, really interesting team because of just the dynamics between all of the personalities of the characters. So that's what's interesting me the most about going forward. I really just want this whole storyline with the guys in the invisible suits and somehow they all look like Donovan. I really just want that to move on and go somewhere else because that's getting annoying. I thought it was a good issue. Three and a half out of five veteran. Yeah, entire team, me too. I really didn't have much problems with this issue. I like the art a lot, and I actually kind of like Starling in this issue. I thought I found her to be pretty funny. So if Starling's growing on me, then this is a pretty solid title altogether. I find the plot kind of intriguing. I agree with Dustin again. Like I, the Invisible Guys, I think I've sort of worn out their welcome. They're kind of one note. They're not really all that engaging. And yeah, they have the kind of cool trick, you know, like where they, <laughs> once they kiss you, they kill you. But you know, we have Poison Ivy for that. But no, no, I, I am digging this run. The one thing that is worth talking about, I would say, is Batgirl's appearance. And if y'all remember back when it was first announced that she was going to be in the Birds of Prey, you know, much of the surprise of, hey, Batgirl writer Gail Simone. I mean, we were kind of wondering, like, you know, why the change, like, why was she there in the beginning? And if this is all they had, they had she had to do in this issue, basically say, oh, hi, Mock, and then basically give orders like she's been there the entire time, which I didn't like. I can understand why Gail Simone was upset, to be honest. I mean, I'm not sure if she read the script, but it's kind of pointless, and I do question why, in the beginning of the title, she says, well, Dinah Lance, the woman wanted for murder, which she obviously very much did. What are you doing here? Like, with her hands crossed and everything, it's like, what, where are you getting off talking to her like that? And then she shows up and says, oh, hi, I'd love to help you. Yeah, follow my lead, and I'll tell you exactly what to do, because I'm the leader. 
it's, it's not so much that I didn't like her personality, but like the way she was written was completely different than when she first appeared, and it, in this very same title, only a couple of months ago. So I found that kind of odd. I found the issue overall enjoyable, although I think most of the issues this this month were not to sound completely negative, but they weren't that much special. But I, I did like this, so I'll give this three and a half out of five better ranks. Well, I still love this book. I thought the technique Swazinski used to move the plot forward was a really interesting one, and the fact that it was in context made it entertaining as well as intriguing. I thought the book was extremely funny and well-balanced in terms of characterizations. And whereas Don seemed to think that the villains were very one-note, I think it's that's a good thing as it leads to developing the characterizations of the the lead characters like the actual birds of prey opposed to just having a big villain to fight straight away i'm a bit nervous about that girl joining the team i wonder what she's gonna do i think it's very odd like someone said how she seems to have changed since her appearance in the first issue but seems like she changes a lot from uh, appearance to appearance as we've seen in for evidence in nightwing but she didn't seem too intrusive in this issue so hopefully she'll fit into the book as she becomes more of a permanent character. The ending has me absolutely hooked for the next issue, and I, I really can't fault this issue. So I'm going to give this 5 out of 5, but I am apprehensive for what Batgirl's going to do in the future. I am so proud of Dustin, because throughout his entire thing about Trevor Cahill, he never once said shipper, and it takes strong men to be able to do that. Or men who are not stuck. <laughs> <laughs> One certainly goes with the other. I do agree with Dustin. This doesn't happen very often. That I, I feel like we really are trying to force Trevor Cahill on Dinah. But, you know, at least he does actually question Dinah and why she took the experimental drug, though he does seem to be easily distracted. But I feel like in other books, they would just, like, pass over that little detail. So at least that was, that was in here. I totally laughed out loud, LOL, when I saw Ev say there's another way and then knock Dinah out because it was just totally unexpected. We have had many backflashes as of late in other books, but I really think that this one works uh, really well. You know, if we're consistently following Dinah's perspective, which we have been from issue one, it's really only right that we would miss many events after she was knocked out. And then as Starling goes back for us, we get to experience the action from someone else's point of view, which I thought was great. I like seeing all the different birds with their respective struggles. And then, of course, Ab's assumption of Ivy's evil tendencies certainly come <laughs> to, to bite her. Okay, well, you know, I've seen someone throw a punch with a bad arm regarding Cass versus Sheba when she's handing over the necklace. But Ev, well, I guess Cass didn't smile while she was doing it. And I feel like Ev would have at least shown some pain while punching out the press aid. But, you know, at least she does warn him that it will take a couple of hits. And he totally deserves it because he was acting like a complete jerk. I'm still sensing an issue here with the judge, his supposed age, and his depiction. I didn't mention it on TBU, but I did mention it over on that other podcast, Batgirl to Oracle. And the little sheet of paper that they found in the abandoned warehouse said that he was born in 1943. So the judge would be around 77 years old, and yet he looks like he's maybe in his 50s, maybe. So it's a little strange. And then the plot thickens. 
human bugs. No, not human centipede, but bugs like surveillance. I, you know, I think this is really getting interesting, and I wonder whether there is a bigger agency involved in how bad this could get for the birds that are on the other side of the law. Is the government involved? Who knows? Batgirl all of a sudden coming onto the team, and now she's happy. This doesn't really make sense given her reaction to the invitation in issue one, which everyone else has mentioned. Maybe she's a scroll. I don't know. I love seeing the different ways that the birds enter the building. I like seeing Starling using her smarts with the laser. But then where does Batgirl get off giving orders? Isn't Dinah the team leader? Wasn't Babs the one who turned her down? Does Batgirl really have all that much field knowledge to begin with directing the team? Who knows? Tune in next time. I know, right? Tune in next time, true believers. Well, you know, the ending, I was totally thrown for a loop, just like the birds, and I think that's how you want it to be, where you're, like, right in the action. This was a great issue. I am loving this book, and I give it 4.5 out of 5 batterings. So out of 4 reviews, it is going to give Birds of Prey, number 4, a total of 4 out of 5 batterings. Let's move into our last issue, Batman Incorporated Leviathan Strikes. Batman! Why is he running, Dad? Because we have to chase him. Why? Because he can take it. Because he's not a hero. He's a silent guardian. A watchful protector. The Dark Knight. I don't get it. Neither do I, son. But it sounds cool. Uh, okay. <laughs> Everyone, get comfortable, because this is a long one. Batman Incorporated Leviathan Strikes The long-awaited return of a book that's so confusing it makes Batman Odyssey look like the Hungry Caterpillar Written by Grant Morrison with art by Cameron Stewart and Chris Burnham The issue opens with Stephanie Brown and another girl being tied up in a noose surrounded by other masked girls chanting We are dead, all hail Leviathan We then cut to a month previous and it becomes apparent that this event takes place before Flashpoint Stephanie Brown has been enrolled in at St. Hadrian's School, which turns out to be little more than the St. Trinians for supervillains. Stephanie is there as an undercover agent for Batman Incorporated. Stephanie impresses her teachers, as intended, and is invited to join the Death Girls of Leviathan. At her initiation, which is where the book opened, we meet Johnny Valentine, the son of Pig, the man in charge of the cult. Batgirl manages to escape through her pre-planned exit and rushes outside. Pig's son and the cult members follow her, only to meet Batman, who takes out Valentine, before going to face the headmistress, leaving Batgirl to fight the cult members as well as the teachers. Turns out that the school was training these girls for Leviathan. The headmistress pulls a crossbow on Batman, but before she can fire, Batgirl crashes through the window behind her and takes her out. End of chapter one. Here's where it's going to get difficult, and I will do my best to remain comprehensible. We're at Wayne Tech, and Lucius Fox is showing Bruce some of the latest projects. We then cut to Bruce Wayne Batman, Dick Grayson Batman, Red Robin, and Robin, all on board an enormous ship, which is either sinking or will sink in the future. The group are in a round room surrounded by five doors. Bruce chooses and goes through one of them with the warning of, Batman, no, remember what happened the last time. As Batman enters the room beyond the door, we get the impression that time is repeating itself. Batman has entered the labyrinth of Dr. Daedalus, a labyrinth that destroys the mind. There is a mind eroding gas in the air that mimics the effects of Alzheimer's disease, and the whole purpose is to destroy even the strongest mind beyond repair, 
and apparently what turned Valentin into Pig. We cut to Tamba, where Desmond Zavimbi, apparently a doctor in the pre-Flashpoint universe, is being interrogated by a police inspector about the suspicion of him being Batwing. However, after sending a signal from his watch, an imposter Batwing, accompanied by three other unknown vigilantes in costume, arrives to kidnap Desmond. Desmond and the imposter swap clothes, and Batwing flies off, saying, Tell Batman Jezebel Jet is not what he thinks. I found out what's really in charge here. Before it seems he's attacked. We cut back to Batman in the labyrinth, before cutting again to The Hood, who finds out that the ship that ba- the Bat family are on is a trap, before he is shot by the real headmistress. We then cut back to the ship, and in the circular room, where two of the doors open and spiral members enter. Dick, Robin, and Red Robin take them out, but discover they are actually Night Runner and Dark Ranger, who had been brainwashed. Robin decides to take charge and enters one of the rooms, alone. Back to Bruce, he believes that he has found Nets in a room that looks like it has aged 50 years since he last entered. But suddenly, El Gaucho comes from behind him and punches him in the back of the skull, revealing himself to be a double agent, followed by the real Nets. We then cut to the Outsiders, who have penetrated the Leviathan Orbital HQ, a space station, and on board they find Lord Deathman. We then cut to Oracle online, readying the Robats, see what they did there, and we see once more evidence of time jumping around, before we once again cut back to Bruce in the centre of the labyrinth. There is a string of metabombs around the world, and Batman is told that all he has to do is press the stop button, but El Gaucho goes to poison him. What he doesn't said, however, is give Batman the antidote to the gas before lounging at Nets, who easily stabs him in the neck. Nets then attacks Batman with an electric baton, who is still reaching for the stop button. Weak from the shocks, Nets is about to deliver the final blow before Robin bursts into the room and throws the same knife that Nets used against Algocho into Nets's skull, killing him. It turns out that Nets was just a distraction, a waste of energy and resources, equally Bruce works out that it wasn't Jezebel Jet behind Leviathan. The issue ends up with the real head of Leviathan, Talia Al Ghul, to be continued in 2012. Batman Incorporated Leviathan Strikes. This was interesting. It was originally supposed to be issues 9 and 10 of Batman Incorporated before the new 52 was announced, and then they decided that because of the delays, they were going to hold this off and turn it into a one-shot. The first issue was really what appears to be the last chance of us seeing Stephanie Brown as Batgirl forever, (coughs) much less Stephanie Brown maybe even in the Batman universe since we haven't seen her for quite some time, even though there's been rumors that she could reappear as spoiler. We have no idea what's really going on with the character. So it was interesting to see her at least appear and I thought she she actually brought something to the actual issue it's too bad we had to wait as long as we did to actually see this issue because we knew this was going to happen and it actually ties into an issue of Batgirl that actually was that actually was part of you know before the new 52 as well so the first part I thought was pretty good I thought the idea of you know having the different villains daughters going to the school and then somehow becoming a part of this uh, not not cult but cult-like I guess you could call it a sorority. I, I don't know what to call it exactly, but like a sorority that is basically meant for people, you know, to serve Leviathan. But it, the interesting thing was it was run by Professor Pig's son. That I didn't see coming. I thought that was kind of cool. Then we get to the second chapter, 
and change artists and basically hit the ground running with as much information as we possibly can. And I honestly, I don't really know exactly everything that happened in this issue because there was so much going on. It seemed as if there was magically some characters that were seen in a while reappear, such as pretty much the entire Outsiders besides Katana. They reappeared, as we really haven't seen them since the New 52. Not, of course, that any of this is in continuity anyway, so it really doesn't matter, but uh, we saw the Outsiders, we saw basically everybody in their old costumes before the New 52. We see Oracle in her, I guess, Batgirl internet costume, which was kind of interesting to see, especially in the specific art style that it was in this book compared to Batman Incorporated number 8, which I found that art style really annoying, but I, I liked it in this issue. I guess the big reveal that Jezebel Jet is dead and she has nothing really to do with this was not that big of a surprise. I really didn't see Jezebel Jet behind all of this, but at the same time, I don't know that I actually could say that I saw Ty Al Ghul behind it, considering she's been playing a role within this story of Grant Morrison's since the very beginning with I guess you could go as far back as the reveal of Damien being the son of Bruce Wayne which was right at pretty much the beginning of Grant Morrison's story that this all starts with. don't know really know where it's gonna go from here I I honestly can't even see where it's gonna go because it seems like Batman Incorporated has been you know beat up pretty badly if they're gonna try to follow continuity in the future with the second volume it's going to be rather difficult because there's going to be a lot of characters that are either going to disappear or have new personas. So that'll be weird to see. Although I don't really think they're going to. I think that it's going to probably just, you know, not follow continuity, which would suck because that was one of the plus sides of everything that Morrison was doing was that it was in continuity. And now the entire thing is going to be shifted and either not follow continuity or be completely displaced from the original thought process. I like the art in the first chapter a lot better than Chris Burnham's art, but I'm not really a big fan of Chris Burnham's art. That's not to say it's not good art, it's just not what I like. I don't really like the way he draws faces. On the other hand, Cameron Stewart's art, I, I really enjoyed. I thought he did a great job. You think to yourself, you're going into a school full of nothing but schoolgirls that are wearing schoolgirl outfits, and this is just setting up to be some kind of, like, I don't know, male fantasy <laughs> story, but at the same time, I think that they did a great job at not overdoing the sexiness that they could have done, and I think that it was everything that they did do was not over the top and made sense. And I appreciated that because you know there's there's a certain sexiness to characters that aren't drawn ridiculously over the top sexy, and I, I appreciate that. So, I mean, overall, I don't think that the story was was like super amazing mostly because I know that this was originally supposed to be two different issues and they just really combined it and changed a few minor things. I think the the two art styles the difference between the two art styles is is too great for them to be combined into one one shot. And so I think that was a little bit jarring. So I mean, really overall, I think this would have been probably better if they would have held this or if they would have either released this right away at the beginning of the New 52, and then that way the continuity changes wouldn't have been so effective, 
or they could hold it until they knew when Batman Incorporated the second volume was coming out so that way they could either change more of what they needed to change ahead of time or something I don't know but reality is I think that the timing of the release of this is just too odd and I think that everything going on within the Batman books with the new 52 this is really just not really holding up to what you would expect it to be because it's a Grant Morrison, because of the effects of what's actually going on in the New 52. So overall, I'm going to give this 4 out of 5 Batarangs, mostly because I I thought it was a good story. I just, I, I'm more concerned about it not f- falling in with continuity. This is a very, very, very confusing issue, and I was not sure, especially with the second half, what was going on. And I loved it! <laughs> I mean, I dug the, the heck out of this book, and... Part of it, I think, is because it is... I don't want to say harking back, because it's not really been that long of a period of time. But it's a point of you know history and continuity with the Bat books that once it's not there, you kind of miss it. And I kind of enjoyed, now that it's over, the, the Batman Reborn era, as I like to call it, where they had Batman Inc. and Dick was Batman with Damien as his partner. I mean, that, that, was, that was fun. And because we're, we're right back in that mindset... Because this is obviously written well before the, the New 52 was actually conceived or started. I mean, it it kind of makes me appreciate like w- this over over what they're doing now. But maybe I'll I'll say the same thing when New 52 is over with, if it is if over 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 with. The first story was part Batman Incorporated issue and part Batgirl number 25. This really could have been either or, probably could Batman Batman Girl 25 because it was very much a 70s solo issue. And I thought it was, you know, we got some of her inner monologue that reminded me of the Brian T. Miller book. And I thought the art was excellent. I thought Cameron Stewart was, he was sort of a Marcus Toe-esque kind of artist. But to be honest, in this issue, I liked him as much, if not better. I thought some of his angles were great, especially that first shot of Batgirl. I thought she looked wonderful. And a lot of times, it was just very dynamic and clean looking. And I especially liked the last shot of her, Batman where Batgirl's, like, on, to- on top of that woman, and, like, she's kind of crouching down. I thought that was really cool. And that was easier to understand. The second issue, I had no clue what was going on. But I was, you know, it was sort of like how Joe used to be with Batman Odyssey before it hit him that it sucked, that I was just along for the ride. I really like when Grant Morrison goes in this goofy supervillain plot, and even if you don't know what's going on, it's all due to, you know, science and mad scientists and, you know, time travel and gas out makes you forget your memory and all that stuff. I mean... It doesn't have to make sense, but I kind of like how cheesy it is, and it is entertaining, and all the characters are in character. This is, again, this is one an example of how I, I, I find Batman to be, and I like that it involved all the other Batman Inc. members like Night Runner and The Hood, and we saw more of Batwing, which we probably would have saw before his title was announced. I found what happened to both Jezebel Jet and El Gacha to be rather grisly, and I liked how Robin took, took that guy down by killing him because... For some reason, I would really hate if Batman ever killed somebody, but I don't mind it if another character is sort of forced in that position. And I like that it was Damien, because he, you can tell Damien really regretted it, or was worried that he would disappoint Bruce yet again. And I thought that was a nice bit of characterization. Further, I liked how Batman, when he, re- when he sees Jezebel's disembodied head, and is on the phone, with, on the bat phone with Talia... I really like how he's written there, because you can tell he looks very regretful. He says, you know, before this starts, we need to talk. Don't do this. Talk to me. I like how Batman kind of approaches Talia in that manner. It's not so much, you know, 
oh, you like me, but I don't like you. You're a supervillain or whatever. He he does love her in some respect, and I like, I like that coming through. What nearly broke me, uh, in that one panel, which... I know the DC message boards are talking about it. Is that Batwoman? Is that Kathy Kane? Is she really coming back to life? It's Grant Morrison pulling one over us again. If you listen back to that episode, you know how Josh and I went nuts over that. And if it is Batgirl, I'm not going to say I hate it, but man, Grant Morrison really loves Kathy Kane. Overall, I enjoyed this the most out of all the issues this, this week. And I will give this, honestly, four and a half out of five Batarangs. This was my favorite. This was my most hotly anticipated comic book of the year. And for all the times I was saying how confusing this was during my recap, after reading it for about the fifth time, I actually started to, it actually started to make a lot of sense, and I really liked it. And I really liked the storytelling technique of just putting us in Batman's mindset of not knowing what the hell is going on, except we do build up the story through the flashes through the past and stuff, and seeing things happen over and over again, and then trying to piece together what is real and what's, what's happening and what isn't. I loved the first part of the story, and it was great to see Steph in action again. But it came with mixed emotions, because it made me miss her so much as Batgirl. And the same with Robin, because, as Don was saying, I thought he was written so well there. Chris Burnham draws my favourite Robin. And just that characterization there, just it's, it's set my tolerance for Peter Tomasi back to zero again, because <laughs> I'm really going to miss this Robin again. I thought the art was great. And I thought that both artists fitted their stories really well, although it was a bit jarring, the jump between the two. I thought they fitted their respective stories extremely well. I think it's clear to see where Cameron Stewart was getting his photo referencing, because the three teachers were obviously Lady Gaga, Katy Perry and Rihanna, if you noticed that. Steph also looked like she was being played by Renee Zellweger. And then I couldn't work out if the headmistress was either Madonna or Meryl Streep. So I don't know if one of you wants to help me with that. But I find it odd that Desmond Zavimbi decided to change his name to David for the relaunch, as well as somehow losing his doctorate, unless Batwing is set in the past or something. I thought the Son of Pig characters are very cool, didn't see that coming, and the reveal of Talia as well was great. And although this felt a bit out of context, I think I just tried to read it on its own, especially knowing that it happened before Flashpoint. I'm a bit nervous about how it's going to tie into continuity in the future, but I really can't wait to see where this series goes. So, four and a half out of five batterings. Oh, man. I'm kind of already tearing up a little bit, but I'm a strong person, so I'm not going to cry. You know, this is certainly a comic you need to read more than once, to say the least. But if, if I may, I'd like to talk about the issue of two pieces, as it was originally intended. Chapter one... Oh, man. You know, it was inspired. It was fun. I loved it. It was great seeing Steph in her Batgirl garb again. It would have been great seeing her in any sort of form, but this just kind of brings it all back and really hits me in the gut a little bit. Uh, makes me miss her a lot. She used her wits, and she still showed her positive attitude. I mean, that is... <laughs> that's Steph right there. The, the setting in the girls' school was sinister, and I feel like it could have potential to be an intriguing ongoing. I mean, in itself, I think it would have been really awesome to see, like, what is the school, what's the history of the school, and, and having someone like a spy kind of insinuate themselves in there. That would, that would be great, great storyline, I think. You know, it won't happen. It, it also reminds me of the 60s show, and actually there are many. I feel like someone was watching 60s Batman when they were writing this story. Well, I guess someone Orson. had to be... 
Yeah, I guess it would have to be. Well, number one, like the recent episodes that I've watched where they, the, the gang goes to London, they actually go to a girls' school that trains these girls to be thieves. And I'm like, wait, this is like the exact same thing. I, I loved seeing Steph's confidence level. And, you know, the ending was – it was just so great. Like – I don't even know what I can say more about, but she even gets kind of a pat on the back from Batman, you know, saying good job. And that's like the epitome of of her career right there is like finally leading up to that where she's totally accepted. Like it took her a while to get accepted by Dick as Batman and then finally, you know, as Bruce. And it's just man alive. So five out of five, I, I'm going to give that five out of five gooperings. I'm going to go. But it's OK, Dustin. I'll 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 follow the, the rules. But also, as a note on that final chapter, I loved the, the target practice <laughs> with the girls. And then one of them is, like, shooting green went Like, all of the shots are in the crotch area. It's kind of... Well, I think all of them had, like, sh- uh, crotch shots. But that was just fun. Okay, the second chapter. It was out of this world. And, I mean, obviously... From Joe's recap, you know, the story was all over the place and it was very disorienting, which, you know, if I read correctly, it's, you know, the way it should have been since Nets was really causing Batman a lot of distress and confusion. So, again, like Birds of Prey, where you're really thrown in the action, you're following the perspectives of whomever is talking you know, you're following Batman and, like, you're disoriented along with him. And the psychedelic coloring when you're seeing Batman certainly goes along with this feeling. It seems like one thing happens after another and many events become way too convenient, like El Gaucho all of a sudden administering an antidote rather than a poison. He's not really a double, it seems. It's more like he's a triple agent, so follow that logic. Damien enters right by El Gaucho is a gouten whatever, and throws the dagger to kill Nets. El Gaucho not dying. What's, how did he not die? I don't know. Not to mention all of the guest appearances. And, I, you know, I know that this is Batman Inc., but it was like a cluster you-know-what to read because it was like all these different people kind of thrown on you. I did enjoy the ending and thought it was funny that it's a red phone. See, this is what I'm talking about. A red phone... That Talia uses, because, you know, in the Batman 60s, it's a red phone that they use uh, to communicate with Batman. I give the, the second chapter three out of five. So altogether, this entire book, I would give 3.5 out of five batterings. Steph, thank you very much for making this a great month for me. So Batman Incorporated, Leviathan Strikes, out of four reviews, gets a average of four out of five batterings. That is all of our books. Let's throw over to Nick with Bat Books for Beginners. Hello, and welcome back to Bat Books for Beginners. My name is Nick, and today we're looking at the closing chapter of the Nightfall Saga, and that is called Night's End. Now again, this was a crossover series which covered several different Batman comic series with different creators, but the main ones that were featured were Doug Monk, Alan Grant, and Chuck Dixon did most of the writing, and the art was provided by Mike Manley, Brett Blevins, and Graham Nolan. 
and the first issue came out in July 1994. So where we last left it, Bruce had regained his ability to walk and was preparing to return to Gotham to stop the crazed and out of control Jean-Paul Valley, who has taken the mantle of Batman. Will Bruce succeed? Will he take back what is rightfully his? Let's find out. My role as Batman. I asked Lady Shiva to train me, test me. I can still fight, but the physical memory is gone, and only she can help me get it back. But it seems her method is to put these expert fighters against me. I'm beginning to suspect I've been set up. So the first thing Bruce Wayne needs to do is to regain his fighting spirit by training with Lady Shiva. Problem is, he cannot trust her. Shiva decides to kill the master, an armless martial artist, and she's wearing the mask of a bat while she does it. As a result, the disciples of the master decide to hunt down and kill this assassin. Shiva gives Bruce the bat mask to wear, and he is attacked by the first disciple. Shiva sees this as a good test for Bruce to regain his strength and power. Now, Batman, Jean-Paul Valley, is having hallucinations of St. Dumas again, and he tries to fight through them. Robin does some investigating of Valley and reflects that he's definitely going crazy. Robin meets up with Bruce Wayne, who invited Nightwing along for a debriefing on what they know about Jean-Paul and St. Dumas. Nightwing and Robin agree to join Bruce in taking down Jean-Paul once and for all. Bruce is confronted by and takes down more and more disciples through the book, each getting harder than the last. And Bruce is succeeding every time, gaining back his confidence and strength. Jean-Paul is dealing with his own problems, trying to find the man who killed his father. And he's also being led by his own illusions. Eventually, the two meet after Jean-Paul pursues a gangster called Penn Selkirk. Bruce is once again in his bat suit and tells Jean-Paul it's time for him to stop. Selkirk tries to escape in a helicopter and both Batman pursue after him clinging on to the vehicle. The helicopter crashes atop Gotham's River Bridge which becomes the scene of a battle involving both Batmen. Jean-Paul falls into the river and Batman helps get the others to safety before the helicopter explodes. He then makes his way to the Batmobile which Jean-Paul has booby-trapped. The Batmobile blows sky high and Jean-Paul emerges from the river, staking his claim to finally be the one true Batman. Nightwing enters a fit of rage, believing Batman, Bruce Wayne, to be dead. He strikes at Jean-Paul Valley. Nightwing and Valley fight to the edge of a bridge, and Valley pulls them both over into the water. But Bruce Wayne, of course, is alive. He emerges from the fire of the Batmobile and tells Robin to leave Nightwing, who he trusts will survive his fight with Jean-Paul. Nightwing does manage to escape, and Jean-Paul returns to Wayne Manor for a final confrontation with Bruce. Jean-Paul angrily demands that Bruce take off his costume, saying that he is not the real Batman. Bruce tries to reason with him, but Jean-Paul refuses to relinquish the mantle of the Bat. Bruce recalls how Jean-Paul let a criminal die, and he feels responsible for giving Jean-Paul that mantle. Jean-Paul refuses, they battle it out through the mansion and uh, Jean-Paul escapes into the Batcave. Bruce realises that Jean-Paul's rigged the entrance to the cave with booby traps. He goes out to the gardens to find an alternative route, the well that he fell through as a child. He gets into the back of the cave whilst Jean-Paul is unaware. Again, they confront each other, they fight in the cave, and Bruce leads him away through a narrow part of the cave. Jean-Paul's armour is too heavy and too big, so piece by piece he takes it off until he's left with just his helmet. 
He's ready to fight Bruce in the dark, but all of a sudden Bruce removes the wood protecting the entrance to the well, and which opens up a huge amount of light that goes straight into Jean-Paul's eyes. Uh, Jean-Paul, since he had his night vision on, is suddenly blinded and breaks down into a tearful confession that Bruce is Batman and he decides to give up the mantle. Bruce consoles Jean-Paul, stating that he won't take him to jail and he lets him go. Bruce walks back to the manor. He's not the Dark Knight today, he says, but today he reclaims his life back. Warning. Intruder in back A. The final piece falls into place. Robin, come down into the light. It's not Robin, Jean-Paul. It's Batman. And you've got a lot to answer for. No. You rigged the Batmobile to explode, but you forgot to disable the ejector seat. Get out. I am the Batman. Get out. You are wrong. I own that house up there. I equipped this cave. Only because of your inheritance, and now you have passed it on to me, just as this man passed it on to you. Put the picture down, Paul. It is important to me. Oh, yes, your parents' portrait. I saw the original upstairs in the hall. I bet your daddy gave you lots of things, didn't he? I created the Batman. I am the Batman. No, you are Bruce Wayne. Get out! Slink off to your cars and your women and your parties and take your precious mommy and daddy with you. Take off that costume. Batman is not about technology and firepower. Batman is about restraint, control, strategy. Unbeliever, philanderer, come out! So, big story, lots going on, um, the big conclusion to Nightfall, and I thought it started off in an interesting way with the whole Lady, Sh- Lady Shiva training. The only issue I had was Bruce is allowing Shiva to kill people. I suppose he thinks that he can't stop her at the moment, simply he's not strong enough. But he doesn't seem to be too bothered by her actions of l- killing and, and letting it happen. It seems a little bit odd to me. There is an interesting scene that happened several times throughout the book with Bruce standing on top of a gargoyle looking into an abyss in the city. He wants to jump off this and swing away just like he used to, but he's not ready. And I thought it was really well used throughout the book. It reminded us how difficult it is to, to swing through the city and Bruce needs those instincts and reflexes back. And he's building it up. He's getting there. And I thought that this was a really good way of telling us what stage Bruce was at mentally and physically. Bruce does admit that if he'd had known about the Saint Dumas hypnotism instilled in Jean-Paul, he wouldn't have picked the guy to be Batman. But it makes sense because it was a really rash choice, I thought, a little bit out of character for Bruce to suddenly pick him. And I thought this justified that choice slightly. Uh, Nightwing does make some interesting comments in the book, as in, why didn't he pick me to be Batman? But Bruce didn't think that Dink Grayson wanted the role which he doesn't, but he would be willing to do it for Bruce temporarily. Now, the massive final fight over several issues atop the bridge had plenty of twists and turns and was really exciting. It reminded me of that Roger Moore Bond film atop the Golden Gate Bridge. I I really enjoyed it. It felt very epic. Um, Harold Allnutt makes a return in this book. Good to see he hasn't been forgotten, and uh, I was happy to see him again. The moment when Jean-Paul breaks the portrait of Bruce's father was rather epic and led into another massive battle in Wayne Manor. Felt similar to when Bane turned up there, actually. Very exciting moments with plenty of drama. I thought the way that Bruce used the well that he fell into as a child to enter the Batcave was excellent writing. It really showed how Batman is Bruce's personal creation. He knows everything. He knows all the tricks. And I really enjoyed that moment. Reminded me a little bit of Batman Begins. So the overall Nightfall series, I still think uh, Bruce's return to walking wasn't handled very well. 
uh, nor was it made completely clear how he got that ability back. But Nightfall, the first chapter, first act, was very exciting with Bane. Night Quest, I must say, was a little bit boring with the Bruce and Jean-Paul going in their different directions. I got a little bit bored there. Night's End, I thought, was very good. Um, Jean-Paul as a character was very interesting at the start, but he did become a bit one-dimensional by the end. And his conclusion, where he was simply blinded and then his whole perspective changed, did feel a little bit rushed. But I still think this is a strong, epic Batman story, and it pushed Bruce Wayne to the limit. It changed things up for a while, which was great to see. And it showcased Bane at his best. I doubt it will get any better than that for Bane. And Jean-Paul was an interesting character to bring in. So overall, this book gets four out of five Batarangs. A decent ending, but not a spectacular one. And if I have guessed correctly, he'll be trying to spot me in the gloom at any moment. Just hope he keeps the helmet on long enough to try his night lenses. Bingo. Sun should be rising right about now. So get a good grip on the wooden baffle and... I saw him without a mask. He is not much more than a kid. Stringy hair, little glasses, his whole life ahead of him. Oh, what was I thinking? You are the Batman. I, I am nothing. You have been used and betrayed. The system possesses me. Let me tell you a few things about Gotham City, Paul. It has a population of 7.5 million. It has the largest percentage of sociopathic criminals in any metropolitan conurbation. But it also has schools, parks, a river, ordinary people. And it's got a future for you. If you are willing to go out there and find it. You're not going to take me to the police? I probably should. A long time ago, I fell through that hole. I haven't really ever stopped falling. Maybe you can go the other way. You, you forgive me? Go on. Get out there. Make a life for yourself. Oh. So, Nightfall, one of the massive stories I was looking forward to doing since I started BBFB, is now over. Uh, I'd like to say thank you very much for joining me for it. Next up is something called Zero Month, and this looks very different. This is the aftermath of a DC event called Zero Hour that caused all of the characters in the DC universe to be invaded by their past. Um, so the issues focusing on the Batman family are Batman 511, Shadow of the Bat 31, Catwoman 14, Detective Comics 678, and Robin number 10. So five issues there. We're going to get some very odd occurrences in these books, and it's going to be quite an interesting one to look at. We're going to get a different version of Alfred, a return of Barbara Gordon Batgirl, which I'm very intrigued by. Dick Grayson Robin is also going to make an appearance, as well as Thomas and Martha Wayne. Find out what's going on next time. I've been Nick. See you then. 500 feet over the city. The cape swirling in the wind. My cowl. My true face. Back where it belongs. The batarang line snakes out across the castle. And I am a creature of the night once more. Alright, so that was Back Books for Beginners. Make sure you're picking up the next set of books for the next episode. And make sure you're checking out the Back Books for Beginners feed over on the website. Now, let's go right into our DCU Spotlight. And Don will give us his suggestion for the past two weeks. I'm going to return to a past suggestion and say Superman. Superman, again, written and illustrated by 
George Perez and Jesus Morano, I believe. The thing about Superman is that it's telling a very strong ongoing story while still having kind of one and dones through each issue. It's basically Superman fighting monsters, but these monsters are there for a purpose. And it's both affecting Metropolis and Superman's supporting cast and both Clark Kent and Superman. And I know that kind of sounds typical and cliche, and we kind of heard that description before, you know. At least it doesn't, you know, affect his past. It is interesting. I mean, it's giving Superman conflict with, with uh, maintaining a secret identity. He's getting calls at work for where he's supposed to be, and he is having, you know, problems with trying to maintain his obligations as a son to the late Mom Pa Kent. So that's happening at his, at his job. You know, Perry White's wondering about him. Lois Lane's wondering about him. Jimmy and his new friend Miko are wondering about him. You know, he's getting in trouble with, like, reporters. He's actually becoming part of the story, all while Superman is, you know, he's not wholly being accepted, but he's still doing what he's doing. It's a really engaging story. I- I'm not sure if a lot of people who listen to this show would be inclined to read a Superman story because everyone has their own misperceptions of Superman as a, as a character, whether, you know, they're right or wrong. It's-, it's everyone's opinion. But I would encourage you to try this out because it is a very interesting story. I can't say I've ever actually read this type of story in Superman before. And it's I think it's one of the few stories of the New 52 that is justifiably being told in this new era. It's actually very, very well put together. So please check out Superman. Okay, I'm going to be a bit different and recommend a trade paperback that came out, and that is the Chase Trade, which is collecting the cult favorite series from the 90s, according to DC Comics, which I just picked up and obviously haven't finished yet. But it's very good from what I've read so far. Obviously, it's going to be in a different continuity from the New 52, but if you want to learn about Cameron Chase from the DEO, who's obviously appearing in Batwoman, then it's a great book to read. It's got artwork by J.H. Williams III as well. He's, he's co-writing it. More artwork by people like Mick Gray and Yannick Paquette and lots of others. I would highly recommend it. There's lots of Batman appearances as well as people like The Flash and Martian Manhunter, things like that. So it's really great. I am going to recommend, because this was devilishly uh, taken from me by Donovan last time, or two times ago, Wonder Woman number four, and the creators Brian Azarell and Cliff Chang. Loving Wonder Woman, I just didn't expect it, especially after number one, I'm like, oh, I don't know about this, and then, you know, on a, a whim, I just decided to continue reading it, and it's great, and Wonder Woman is just really vulnerable right now, and I feel like you never see that character like this, but she's just having identity issues like who is she you know finding out who her parents really are and how she was really born and it's almost as if she's on the same wavelength as supergirl trying to figure out her place in the world and then you have hera and the wrath of hera that that is what number four is called and i love this what is so awesome about this as a latin teacher i'm kind of geeking out i guess but you know mythology and it's so close to mythology here because Yes, Zeus is like the playboy of the gods. I mean, he gets with everyone. And, you know, if you're lucky, he may turn into an animal in order to entice you like a swan or a bull. Who knows? And if you're lucky, you will be turned into a golden cow and given as a gift to his wife. It's very strange. But anyways, they're like referencing all this. And, of course, Hera is going to be mad at some point. And, you know, just her and her anger really reminds me of... All the stuff going on in the Aeneid because I teach AP Virgil. I'm going off. But anyways, it's it's just great. And then the ending was like, whoa, what just happened? So, I mean, it's pretty exciting. It's really entertaining. If you're a mythology nerd like myself, 
I think you would be interested in this. My suggestion for this episode is going to be Teen Titans. I know a lot of people haven't been liking Teen Titans. Some people have, some people haven't. I've actually been enjoying Teen Titans. Now, if you are not a fan of Scott Lobdell's writing in Red Hood and the Outlaws, personally, I think that the writing in Teen Titans is, in some regards, almost a complete 180 as far as his, like some of the things that you that, that people are not liking about Red Hood and the Outlaws is the treatment of women, the the really the the characters and the stress on their their faults. This is not really like that at all. I really enjoy the art by Brett Booth and Norman Rapmund, specifically in issue number four. I there was a really cool thing that they did in the uh, the first pages. Normally, you always see the 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 showing of. You know, who's the editors, who's the inkers, who's the letterers, and things like that. Well, the artist actually incorporated, because it was New Year's Eve in New York City, all the billboards in Times Square to show different names, not, you know, very blatantly, but if you actually looked at it, you could see, like, Bobby Chase is one of the editors. All you would see is the B-I-E and then the Chase. it was really cool what they did. I thought that was kind of cool. You don't see that all the time of the actual art incorporating the names of all the creators into the actual art. The story itself, the end of issue four, really just reveals that you know the, the actual founding members of this new Teen Titans group, which is Superboy, Wonder Girl, Red Robin, Flash, or Kid Flash, I should say, Solstice, and Bunker. Bunker is a new character that has been added specifically to this new series but I think overall I'm, I, I'm really enjoying the series I'm, I'm looking forward to what's coming up and there's already talk that they're going to be adding some more characters to the roster and I like the one of the reasons I really like it is because Red Robin is kind of you know dead set he's the leader of the group no matter who has more powers than him who has more, no matter who has more experience than him he's the leader he's the one who's actually bringing all of these characters together to form the Teen Titans that's why I think you should check out Teen Titans. All right, so that is our DCU Spotlight. Let's cover what we'll be covering next time on the podcast. Next time is a little bit less issues than this episode, but we will be covering Batwing number 5, Detective Comics number 5, The Huntress number 4, Penguin Pain and Prejudice number 4, Batgirl number 5, Batman and Robin number 5, and Batwoman number 5. So... Just a few less comics, but the whole idea of breaking up the, the second and third weeks of the month is so that it's kind of an even, you know, there's an even number of comics. So I think next episode we'll have a total of, I think, seven comics, and this one we had eight. So, and that should be the pretty, pretty close to the average up until we get to February where we have Batman Beyond, which will get added to one of the weeks. But then also Huntress and Penguin Pain and Prejudice are also about to wrap up too. So needless to say, a lot of different things going on. So that's pretty much it for this episode. But be sure to check out the website for all the news related to the comics and everything else related to Batman. Be sure to check out the forums and become a member. We've been having a lot of problems with the website. We quite honestly have two developers working on it. We're having a real hard time actually solving the problem the problem was solved and now the problem has returned so if anybody out there is a developer and wants to donate their services that'd be greatly appreciated really just trying to figure out the best way to fix the problem without the site having to go down again like it did before 
So if you're having problems getting onto the site, trust us when we say we're working on it, we're trying to get it fixed. In the meantime, we're still trying to make sure that we can get all of the podcasts recorded on time and released on time so that everyone can listen to them when the website is actually fully functional. In addition to that, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. You can leave us a review on iTunes. Those are always greatly appreciated. And be sure to check out Bat Books for Beginners feed as we have updated and first 50 episodes of Bat Books for Beginners are, are on the website as there was 20 before, but now there is 50 episodes out there. So very shortly, we'll be completely caught up with every episode currently released. But So that's everything for this episode. This is Dustin. This is Donovan. This is Joe. It's me, Stella. You've been listening to the Babbing Universe Comic Podcast. We'll see you guys next time. Happy New Year, guys. If you're offended by Stella, please write in and we can fire her. <laughs> oh. Any excuse to get rid of her. This is a different arena for me. <clears throat> oh shoot! I don't. E- oh, I didn't even put creator names. That's um, writer Judd Winnick. Judd Winnick. Gilliam March. Okay, artist. Some asshole. Gilliam March. Sorry about that. Okay, Catwoman number four. Oh shoot! What was it called? Okay, seriously, someone's got to fix that now. Um, mute your mic. What? What do you hear? We hear feet. I hear my voice coming out of your mic. Fuck you. I don't know I don't know what that is, okay, help me. And now I don't hear anything. Amazing how that works. Anyway, continue. I'm okay. Sorry. No, that is okay. The best comic ever. Red Hood and the Outlaws. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm not answering that. I'm trying to see a trend. <laughs> that I'm cursed? Okay. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. If that, ha- if that happens again, I'm yanking the phone out. <laughs> um. Ready. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, man. I really am. I'm limber up for this one. Okay. Batman Odyssey number three, written and drawn by Neil Adams, 